Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the Past, and we have gr- plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo returns to the world of atmospheric terror and the dread one feels from the ambiguous nature of supernatural versus reality. Robert Wise was our first dive, but clearly without the innovations helmed by one particular RKO producer, the world of horror films and cinema at large would not have his or other contributors contri- contribute contributors to add to this world of atmospheric terror tonight the ballyhoo will do the daring task of tackling the terrifying and spine-tingling world of val luton with a picture under his tenure that carries long-lasting social ramifications that have impacted us to this very day is there a terrible curse laid upon the island of this greek war setting or is it the all too true ramifications of a devastating plague one thing is for sure no one may leave the island as we dive into 1945's isle of the dead so see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds may leave the island. I'm afraid you'll have to make an exception in my case, General. I'm traveling on urgent business for my government. No one may leave the island. I don't know what's the matter with the General. Something up here. You'd better stay out of his way. Look. She's dead. Look into the eyes of that one. You'll see how she died. What do you mean, spying on us like this? You feel that fear is some sort of evil influence. Was that it? What are you going to do about it? When I am sure, I will destroy her. (laughs) 
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Coming off the world of terror and going into other genres with less than stellar results, Luton resumed his role of what would end up becoming nine legendary horror films that would shake cinema fans to cores that they had never known would exist in their bones. The biggest change in the works this time around, though, was the arrival of Universal's biggest monster star, Boris Karloff, who aligned with Luton on the desire to shed away the hokiness that had developed under the recent reign of monster films that paled to their predecessors. What began as an adaptation of a vampire novel turned into a film that runs the gamut from true internalized terror to timely themes that not even Luton himself could have foreseen. But just what did Luton and director Mark Robson put on Isle of the Dead? Why should we fear this island? Why should it make us shiver in our theater seats? Well, we cannot ask terrifying questions and then get them answered without a guest who is willing to brave the unknown once again. With us is a return guest whose knowledge of film and all things it can achieve, running the gamut with his wonderful shows like Film Guff and Here Lies Amicus, His knowledge will also be extending into the wide world of Hammer with his upcoming series, House of Hammer. Please welcome back Richard Johnson's favorite podcaster, Kev Moore. Hello. Wow, you're back. You you, you didn't get scared away by all the creepy sound effects I put in your episode. (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm going to tell you this on air. I waited to tell you this, but I've I've kind of been uh, communicating with our mutual friend Smokey on um, on the numbers for Ballyhoo because I don't tend to look at them as often as uh, as often as one might think. Although I do look at them once a week to just see like what are we doing. Mm-hmm. You and Smokey are tied for the second most listened episode of this show. Fight. <laughs> Fight, fight, fight. <laughs> I that's what I'm proposing here on the air, Kev, is that we need to put two like Star Trek battle battle weapons in front of you guys and just make you fight in a Klingon uh, in a in a Vulcan little ceremony here, you know? Get some mock time going up in this his house. <laughs> Never give Smokey anything that closely resembles a battleth. That's all I can say. <laughs> You can, you guys get tired of fighting. I have to come in with one of those things that fakes your death for a second. <laughs> wait, wait, Smokey's not Spock here. <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, I don't know how logical is he. Hmm. I mean, hmm. Hmm. well, that's well, a tricky hold, one. Hold on, hold on. Let's just um, let's just take this back. Allie's the logical one. You're <laughs> Doctor Bones. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, welcome back. So yeah, there have been developments since your last episode. Obviously, you are doing the Film Guff podcast with your wonderful co-host Ali. Yep. You do the wonderful uh, Here Lies Amicus podcast with Gabriella, of which, by the way, you've gotten me into some Amicus, and I have to say, how dare you? <laughs> it's, it's a very strange avenue of filmmaking to go down. I I love From Beyond the Grave. I, I loved it. Yes. It had... It, it had Donald Pleasance and his daughter being creepy on screen, and I never thought I'd see that in my There's life. There's a glorious <laughs> shot where you've got Donald Pleasance and Angela. Uh, is it Angela? I think it's Angela. An- yeah, it's Angela yeah, Pleasance. Angela. Yeah. You've got Donald Pleasance and Angela just looking to camera with a strange grin on both of their faces, and that just haunts you for the rest of your living days. 
Yeah, the, and I and I watched that concurrently with watching Terror in the Isle for the first time. Oh yeah, um, which is if you've never, if nobody's ever heard of this, Terror in the Isle is a a compilation movie that's supposed to work like that's entertainment for horror movies. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the, it has uh, Nancy Allen and Donald Pleasance narrating the ra- or starring in the wraparounds that introduce like different concepts of terror. There's one shot where Donald Pleasance. Um, is behind a couple that is looking scared, and he comes up behind in between them and goes like, "Terrifying, isn't it?" turning, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's one of those moments. I'm like, "Why are you here? What, what, how much booze money did you need?" <laughs> um, and that, but that moment with him and Angela smiling definitely is at the top because I don't think I've ever seen like I've and I'm a Halloween fan through and through. Like that's my franchise. Yeah. I've never seen Pleasance be as creepy as he is in From Beyond the Grave. There's like, there's no comparison. He's wonderful. Um, that. Now, I wanted to get into this with you, though. You are starting another podcast with three other podcasters tackling the wonderful wide world of Hammer. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, Hammer Films, they started in the early 30s, early to mid 30s. And um, my three friends who are Smokey, Ben Taylorson and Adam Roach were basically going through the entirety of Hammer. So we're not just covering Hammer Horror, although Mm. that is a fair chunk. That's almost looking at it as the third phase of Hammer. The first Mm. two phases are quite interesting. And um, yeah, it's a wild ride already (laughs) i i was seeing photos from the page as it's unfurled and uh, i was just like the hell you say bella lugosi (laughs) yeah what what What? and then in in, you have to imagine over here stateside you're when you're when you hear information you've never heard before your brain automatically melts um (laughs) because we can't hand we can't handle it with with a with a calm demeanor we have to just like unload and unleash ourselves and i was just like well i've got all the homework to do now all the best homework because i i can't i i I was i've been very open about this my hammer knowledge is very limited because i saw dracula prince of darkness the mummy and the hound of the baskervilles yeah and that's all i had seen Hmm. so like curse of frankenstein recently was one of the it was the first time i'd ever watched it the beautiful way to get into it um gave me some more cushing um that i needed in my life um, and so now I'm kind of like hooked into that and Amicus and I'm kind of doing them side by side to be like, let's get two different perspectives here of the, the different elements of British horror, yeah. um, or just British film in general. Cause like, that's the thing. like being here stateside, getting exposed to British cinema is kind of like a weird, like you, you've got to latch onto something pretty quickly. Like for me, it was like Monty Python or Edgar Wright when I was younger. And then that's been able to expand better. Yeah. Mm. Um, but this is like, this is, and this has actually given me a better appreciation for Christopher Lee than I already had for him. Like, cause I hold him in high esteem, but to see what he was doing with the Dracula and the Frankenstein monster roles is really cool to watch. Like yeah. it is astounding. Yeah. Um, but I, and I, and everybody can be looking forward to that very soon, but we're not here to talk about hammer horror. We're here to talk about terror films not horror films because mm. there's a distinction according to mr val luton about horror versus terror um that's right we're here to talk about val luton 
Um, now, Kev, we talked about your experience with Golden Age Hollywood on your previous episode. Yeah. Um, and we're going even further back, obviously, since we we're going uh, before before Wise, there was Luton. Um, what was your exposure to Val Luton? My exposure to Val Luton is pretty limited, as is most people's. Um, it's probably just down to cat people, to be fair. I walked with a zombie came much later, sort of, well, I think I would have been about 18 or so by the time I saw that. Um, even then, that feels like it's about 50 years ago. Um, and yeah, <laughs> it's... It's very tricky to get to see Val Luton in the UK. It's just that's, that's what I've things. heard. Can you expound upon that? Is it just that they don't? I think it's have just the... yeah. I don't know whether it's a, a rights thing or what. You know, RKO being what it is, it's a very <laughs> limited, non-existent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and of course, their archives have been split up and devoured by separate companies, and then you've got separate yeah. LLCs and what have you that have different rights and what what have you. So, I mean, the Isle of the Dead Blu-ray, I believe he's on Warner Archive in the States. Yeah. 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 It's, um, so, uh, if I can extrapolate for you, stateside at least, hmm. RKO's library is owned for the most part, unless I'm misremembering a few titles by Warner Brothers. Yeah. Um, they have that along, like that comes along with the Turner library, I believe, um, which also consists of all the MGM films yeah. and some Sam Goldwyn films. So like there's, <laughs> I find it funny that gone with the wind is at Warner Brothers. <laughs> it's one of those things where I'm just like, yeah, that's, that's, that's technically hilarious considering yeah. <laughs> what MGM used to be. Um, and a lot of that stems from when Ted Turner bought the rights to MGM movies in the eighties and then lost it pretty quickly because it's, as it turns out, it's kind of well, expensive to buy those things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the stumbling block as far as the UK is concerned, because obviously mm -hmm. um, MGM had already bought RKO over here to a certain extent. And, then you'd got United Artists involved in that as well over in the UK. But of course, yeah. they've gone to the wall and Sony part own it now. So the water gets really muddy. And then, yeah. of course, you've got the BBC um, have some <laughs> stake in it somewhere along the line as well. It gets really odd. So it's very you know, tricky to see. The more I think about it, maybe the reason I haven't gotten some of the Jack Benny movies I need, Kev, is because the BBC somehow owns them. <laughs> Probably. And if so, I need to get them away from them immediately. Unfortunately, it's not... if it's... the BBC do own them, um, look, looking at what they do with Doctor Who... The Jack Don't Benny stuff is probably in a shack in Pakistan right now. Uh -huh. <laughs> 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 That's going to be it for this week's episode of Yesteryear Pally there, Review. There, there. <laughs> Kev made me cry. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, it it is um, actually I do know for a f uh, for a fact. Our previous guest Laura told me that there was a documentary about Jack made by the BBC that the BBC wiped when they were wiping yep. their tapes. So uh, yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> 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 um, um, but uh, but anyway, the the bottom line with the uh, uh, the the RKO of it all in the states here. Val Luton has been more or less available um, 
as early as like the mid two thousands. Um, so I guess I'll like I'll give my little history with Val Luton. Um, I came upon Val Luton because of uh, Martin Scorsese. Because why not? Why not? <laughs> and yeah, I, I like Val. I like Val. I love him so much. You know, I have a Val Luton poster hanging on my wall. He's just hanging out there, kind of like you know, just like in a sexy bikini, and just. <laughs> um, uh, no, he. Uh, it was somewhere along the lines of like one of his documentaries or something in regards to like just interviews where I came across the name Val Luton and Cat People was mentioned, um, and I believe Isle of the Dead was too, um, and I spent money I didn't have in film school on that big box set that Warner Brothers put out which consisted of like two like the they were split discs so they had like one movie on one end one movie on the yeah. other and it had the documentary on it uh The Man in the Shadows um the story of Val Luton narrated by Martin Scorsese which that that I when it when it comes to those documentaries and him being on them it's one thing for him to be a participant it's another experience to listen to him narrate it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because yeah, I love Martin Scorsese to death. I I, have, I am an apologist for oh, like ninety nine percent of his output. He is not meant to narrate documentaries. Is <laughs> a full respect to him. Um, ever it's a play great doc. Forward. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it is like it's it's especially what we have in our existence now regarding Val Luton. The the the, the contrast is stark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um. But uh. But yeah. And I went through. I went through all of them, starting with Cat People and going all the way through the one that stuck with me the most was the body snatcher with I walked with a zombie second and then cat people third. Um, and I walked with, oh. <laughs> I, I walked with a zombie sticks with me mainly on a visual front. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it's inspired me to write my own little horror short um, that'll, that'll be making after the one I'm making now because I can't stop draining money into movies. Um <laughs> I'm going to die poor, Kev. You understand this, right? <laughs> um, Most creatures but, um, do. Oh, yeah. No, I know. But like, uh, hopefully it's not a, like an Edgar Allan Poe situation where I'm like, <laughs> just like dead on a bench. <laughs> um, but so I went through the whole gamut, and then I kind of kind of dipped out of Luton for a little bit. Um, and then, um, lo and behold, some podcaster in the UK with... <laughs> Some kind of wonderful voice. He just he did this show. First they talked about Sherlock Holmes, and I was like, "That's fucking badass." And then they talked about Hitchcock, and I was like, "That's fucking badass." And then they talked about Val Luton, and I'm like, "That's the name I've not heard in a long time, a <laughs> long time." <laughs> and um, I listened to the Secret History of Hollywood's um series on Val Luton, um, uh, while still in the midst of my own little like uh bouts with depression and recovery and it was good following that journey um and getting more of a sense of Luton the person because the thing that the thing that strikes me about Val Luton is like on this show we do tend to talk a lot about directorial voices and the authorial voice of a director yep there are a few producers that we'll be talking about going down the line Val Luton being one of them where the producer is like ostensibly the director of the piece for the most part like it, it's the creative producer the idea mm. of the one who's helming the production from every single angle and apart from your episode we talked about on the bad and the beautiful how kirk douglas's character is very much 
inspired off of both Luton and Selznick um, in terms of how his character is portrayed. He starts off by making a cat people like movie and yeah. then goes on to making Selznick esque crazy decisions. Um, and the, uh, so like people have already been primed if they're listening that they're they've already been primed for Luton a bit, um, and within that talking about Isle of the Dead is interesting because while all of the films carry some form of resonance to this day, Isle of the Dead carries an immediate resonance <laughs> very much. I I hadn't rewatched Isle of the Dead in so long until Film Club, and when it fil- when it popped up in Film Club, I was like, mm. "Oh, oh yeah, we're gonna do this, right?" And then immediately, mask comments, uh, vaccine yep. comments. <laughs> was, by the way, guys, get fucking vaccinated. <laughs> um, yeah, not that goddamn hard. If Kevin and I could do it, so can you. <laughs> um, uh. And so it was interesting watching the um, the the reactions from the film club, but then also going back to it after the fact. Um, yeah. Because like when I so when when I when I had you on, I was like, well, we're gonna bring you back for Val Luton. You threw out Body Snatcher and Isle of the Dead, and it was tempting because I'm like, well, I love the Body Snatcher, but yep, if I can get Isle of the Dead to talk about today, <laughs> <laughs> while we're still where we're at, um, and. Uh, and with within all of that, I think is interesting because the movie, as it plays out for only seventy one minutes, it's interesting how much of a debate is crammed into that movie on a social uh, on a social political front and mm-hmm. like a cultural front that it's it's it, it's tricky to suss out. Like each time I watch the movie, I get some f- different kind of reaction out of it. So it's like kind of like a it's one of those timeless elements of Luton that sticks with you. And in this case, it has that immediacy within the last year. Um, but before we talk about Isle of the Dead, we should talk about Val Luton. Um, now, uh, I want to, uh, I, ma- I made a bunch of notes and on this, um, and some of them I'm going to read verbatim because I got uh, very punchy. But the first one I think is the most important uh, note of all time. Uh, Val Luton made great films that created a new angle for terror on the screen that set the standard for the elegance uh, films in the horror genre can't possess. Adam Roach knows more about this than I do. I have no idea what I'm doing here. Now, <laughs> now that now that that's been settled, and also I'm not going to try a Val Luton impression because that's not going to go over well. <laughs> Although there will be. There will be a gentleman entering the story here in a minute that already has an impression that will never go away. Um, but uh, yes, uh, Luton was born Vladimir Ivanovich Hofschneider in Yalta, um, which is now in the Ukraine, in 1904. He's of Jewish descent. He's the son of a moneylender named Max Hofschneider and uh, Anna Nina Leventon. Um, and his actress was Ala Nida. Ala- Nazamova. Ladies and gentlemen, Ala Nazimova is the way you pronounce it. I am terribly, terribly sorry. Not at all cool of me to do that. I'm already flubbing this up. But nevertheless, let's get back to the show where Kev will listen to me blunder through the rest of this. Thank you. Uh, Best known as an actress... For the 
1923 film Salome uh, from Path A Films. Now, I've never seen the film. Kev, have you? No, I haven't. No. I, th- this may be a follow-up at some point for myself at the very least because I need to know what the uh, aunt of uh, Val Luton, uh, what, her, what, what, what could she bring to the table, you know? Like, what, she, what could she do, you know? Did she? <laughs> she could boss her son around quite well. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, th- no, no doubt. Um, yeah. Now, the the mother le- the mother leaves the father, taking her and the children to Berlin, and then Luton and his family emigrate to America in 1909 above aboard the SS America. Um, and from there, Luton, it, it first of all, it should be said, and this is said all over across the board, Luton possessed a big imagination as a child. Um, had a very, very creative soul and whatnot. Um, and I think that it's, it, it, it's, it's no secret that like when you look at how he has the inspiration of his aunt combined with this love of love of storytelling, that something's destined for this young man. Um, and, uh, he goes from there, uh, to, Becoming a journalist, he worked for as a society reporter for the Darien Stamford Review. He was let go after he wrote a story about a truckload of kosher chickens dying during a New York heat wave. As it turned out, this story was fake. (laughs) (laughs) And my reaction to that was not, oh, how creative. My reaction to that was, fake news? <laughs> hmm. and, then, and then suddenly the last four years came rolling through my door. Yes. <laughs> ah! He set a precedent. He inspired but a precedent. But there is a... But, but, ooh. Oh, hey. oh. See where I did oh. oh. Oh, God, no. <laughs> now, no. strangely Don't do enough... do that to me. <laughs> yeah, strangely enough, there's a, a really weird connection between um, the House of Amicus and um, the House of Luton. And it goes in a very roundabout way. Um, Cat People, you know the remake that has Paul Schrader in it? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's the yeah. writer, who is, of course, uh, Scorsese co-collaborator of many counts. Yeah, we're working on that Jesus thing together. Yes. It's going to be well, great. Well, <laughs> it, it makes you wonder just how much they talked about Luton together anyway. But the producer... On Cat People was Charles W. Fries. Charles W. Fries is from Metro Media, and he's also a collaborator with Milton and Max from Amicus Studios. Yeah, the, the uh, Milton uh, Shabatsky, right? Yes. Yeah, the, yeah, the, Milton Shabatsky and, and Max. I'm Rosenberg. getting my knowledge in, yeah, bit yeah. by bit. <laughs> <laughs> and it's strange um, that there's also a parallel because. Again, um, Milton was a producer that was also a creator. Mm, Very much so. He would actually get the short stories and the comic bits and create... A story, and he would like. he would work within the right. He would like basically work work in all aspects of the production. Yeah, yeah, right through to editing. Yeah, and that's like, and that's something that like, you know, like stepping outside of the history of Luton for a second and talking that about that from a filmmaking standpoint, it's almost become a necessity to do that in a way that it doesn't ex- didn't necessarily exist during the auteur era of the new wave. Yeah, um, or. If you believe in the auteur theory, I, I love Andrew Saris. I don't believe in that theory, uh, but but the the idea of 
getting your hands involved in every aspect of production has now become a necessity for independent filmmakers, whether they be somebody on the very low end of the spectrum like me or somebody like um, Ari Aster or um, Quentin Tarantino, where they like they, they have their hands in every aspect of it. So like writer, producer, director, something like that. Yeah. Well, and look at Christopher I Nolan. Find... He writes at the top yeah. of the tree. He's yeah, exactly. Well versed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, writer, director, producer, yep. sound engineer. Yep. <laughs> You've only got to see his first film, Following, where he does everything. He's probably yep. his own yep. tea boy as well. Yeah. <laughs> More tea, Chris? Why, thanks, Chris. <laughs> I'm doing American Chris, by the way, because I don't believe in British Chris. <laughs> we'll get that. We'll get that accent sussed out someday. <laughs> <laughs> um it, it but he you're right there is this uh there is this element that of it becoming second nature to us now mm. like you know working within each and every department in order to get things done so like it's not un, uncommon but in the studio mentality of the factory era especially you have things like you have your director you have your producer you have an associate producer if you have somebody on like Henry Blanke or Halby Wallace who then end up going to the executive executive producer. Yep. Um, and you and then you go down the list from director, director of photography, editor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so creative producers weren't uncommon. Again, Hal Wallace and Henry Blanke did this as well, but not at the level that Luton and Selznick did. Um mm. The one thing that I can tie Luton and Wallace and Blanky to for the most part is that when they're working for a studio, they are falling within the guidelines of what the studio is asking them to do. Technically, they're getting exactly what the studio wants, whereas Selznick just decided to do whatever he wanted to do <laughs> because he was an independent. He could do that. Yeah. Um, and um, and so I, I do find it interesting that like in, in, in this extending into something like Amicus where they're getting every everybody's pitching in in sort of an extent. Yeah. It is interesting. Like the first thing immediately that we can trace as a lesson down the line is the ability to learn every aspect of production, because frankly, especially today, if you don't know every aspect of production in some form or fashion, you don't need to be a sound expert. But as long as you understand how sound works and why it's important, then you can make creative decisions based upon that. Um, same with editing, same with lighting, same with coloring, same with, heck, even DIT. You know, how, do you want to make sure you're getting your footage in on time or do you need or do you have all the time in the world you can take a minute to get it to other hard drives etc etc exactly see we, we shoot on computers now guys i'm sure you guys do it through holograms those listening in 100 years but <laughs> but uh yeah so it, this this career of him being creative and being a journalist and kind of learning the different aspects of storytelling leads him to become an author uh and he finds great success with a book called No Better of Her Own, which is then turned into the Gable Lombard film No Man of Her Own. Prior to that success, he actually worked as a uh, writer for the MGM publicity department uh, office uh, where he would write the novelizations for popular films from the studio era. Um, and I'm just upset that Val Luton didn't live long enough to write the novelization for Star Wars. Because oh, wow. it would have, it would have been, 
atmosphere. Vader would have only been alluded to. And is Vader real? Is he not real? Are the Jedi real? Or are they a bunch of bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> and then I want the Halloween one because I want to. I want him. I don't want him to think the boogeyman isn't real. The boogeyman's clearly real. I want him to allude to whether or not Donald Pleasance is real or not. <laughs> Does Doctor Loomis exist? Or is he not here to save the day? Is Laurie just living in a delusion? <laughs> well, after seeing Donald Pleasance in a film called Phantom of Death, I'm beginning to wonder whether he, he was actually real at all. I'm real, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. You're an imitation I'm doing right now. Shut up. <laughs> I, you know, like, but there, are, I believe in Dr. Loomis until part five, and then I'm like, you're not Dr. Loomis. You're some kind of monster. <laughs> um, actually, you know what? He may not. He may be not technically real, but as we were discussing earlier about from beyond the grave, I mean, is he is is that real? <laughs> <laughs> well, true. The thing is, <laughs> his career would probably make for a very interesting series because he didn't mm-hmm. just do horror. You know, he did some really odd films, and don't forget, they, he's in The Great Escape as well. The Great Escape. He's Blofeld. Yeah. He's, he's actually our go-to image for Blofeld for uh, the most true, part. Yeah. And the actually, uh, I think it was Erwin Yablons talks about the fact that they uh, were, he wanted to get Pleasance for Halloween after seeing him in Will Penny. So that's a Western. Yeah. It's, it's it's not what you would expect, but there was like something about him that he could bring some gravitas to the role. And John Carpenter smoked a cigarette and just went, yeah, whatever, man. Like you got $300,000 work with, I, I guess. Yeah, Donald Pleasant's work. I wanted Peter Cushing, but you know, you didn't listen to me. Uh, <laughs> actually, there is, um, there's a lot of hammer connection with Halloween in terms of people who turned it down. <laughs> Christopher Lee is another one. And he went over to Laura Hill, uh, Laura, uh, to Deborah Hill and was just like, that was the worst mistake of my life. The second one was leaving Toxic Fog, but the first one was t- immediately dropping the role of Loomis. I should never have done it. <laughs> um, I, I actually am glad he did because I don't want anybody else in that role at this point. I don't um, think it'd have brought the same sort of intensity. Um, it would have been. It would have been too uh, extroverted and not. Yeah. Um, like it, there's an internalization that Pleasance brings to that character. That, there's like, a certain amount of uh, vulnerability as well, whereas mm-hmm. you wouldn't get that with Christopher Lee because don't forget he's about 19 foot tall. He's the tallest Lonnie, man on set. <laughs> yeah, get your ass away from there. <laughs> so of course, even if even if um, he actually came up against Jason, you know, or. No, not Jason. Even if he came yeah, up, Michael. <laughs> even if he came up against Michael Myers, he'd just hold him at arm's length anyway. Yeah, <laughs> he'd stick out his yeah. hand, and Michael would run at him with a knife, but he can't get past his yep. hand. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> You're um, just gonna have that image anyway. now. <laughs> no, yeah. Anyway, to Luton though. Um, <laughs> He uh, eventually does some other. He does other works with novel uh, with in the novel world, um, but then he's finding it a little bit harder to achieve that same success. So he goes to Hollywood, and he starts writing a treatment for Taras Bulba um, for a certain man. That certain man. That certain amphetamine man. Um, David O. Selznick, our our wonderful David O. Selznick, who. His story is kind of slowly being pieced together here on the Ballyhoo and on Shamley <laughs> because he's kind of like in and out. 
But it should be noted that Selznick at this point, um, he is not doing this for Selznick's independent company. He is still with MGM. Selznick is at the uh, in the production in the production head of MGM at this time before he then breaks off from his father-in-law's company to form David O. Selznick International. Um, so, one of Luton's first big on-screen credit successes. Um, involved him creating the revolutionary sequences for the 1935 adaptation of A Tale of Two Cities, um, which, as we all know, stars Ronald, I'm in the library, Benita Coleman. Um, and uh, this is a those sequences he helps conceive with Jacques Teneur. Jacques Teneur would end up playing a big role for Luton down the line, not necessarily with today's movie, um, but um, arguably Tenur sets the visual standard for films like Isle of the Dead. Um, but those revolutionary sequences, it's coordinating like tons of extras, tons of camera angles and sweeping shots to indicate the revolution of the of the peasants overthrowing the aristocracy and then you know like building up to the momentum before ronald coleman goes tis a far far better thing to do than i did something and <laughs> you know <laughs> uh so like it when you watch those sequences isolated it is like intriguing to see how much he could pull off with the best budget because MGM didn't skimp, especially on an adaptation of Tale of Two Cities. If they weren't doing a huge drama film, they were doing a prestige piece or a musical. And that's an example of the grandiosity that MGM possessed. And eventually Luton leaves along with Selznick to join Selznick's company. And among the films that he uh, works on, and I really don't know if this is begrudgingly or, you know, just you know, like he took a lot more passion into it was gone with the wind, um, which is a, obviously a film that I am not a huge fan of. No, oh, it's so um, boring. It's boring. Your lead hero is not relatable and shouldn't be worshiped. <laughs> the, well, the pair of them, they, they deserve each other. They're yeah. neither, neither he, he's a heel and she's a, a, a just a, a user. Yeah, and also let's not forget the racism. But anyway, oh, wow. that that's yeah. you know, yeah, of course. But anyway, we're not here to talk about Gone with the Wind. Otherwise, no. I mean, I don't know, Kev. Kev, do you have uh, eleven hundred hours? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I saw you were t- recording two podcasts yesterday. I'm not adding to your bucket anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, the um uh. Among the sequ- but first of all, like the reason why I can't get a confirmation on this is because. It seems like Luton really did, in in certain respects, respect Selznick for any frustrations he would have had with him because it's Selznick. You're going to have frustrations with him. Um, but the, there is a report in the documentary on one of the Gone with the Wind Blu-rays uh, extras. Um, it's a huge documentary that covers virtually every angle of it with people interviewed in the 80s. And one of the employees of Selznick's um, reports that Luton hated the novel and thought it was unfilmable and it wasn't even worth his time. And Selznick, of course, went, but everybody loves it! And um, <laughs> he just decides he's going to do it. And one of the sequences that Luton apparently outlined um, that he thought, like, well, this is impossible. There's no way he's going to be able to film this is the scene in Gone with the Wind where uh, the camera pulls back and you see the fallen 
the fallen soldiers of the Confederacy that then eventually lands on the Confederate flag. Um, a shot that is best watched today when watching the movie Black Klansman and for no other reason. Um, because you're watching it in a Spike Lee movie and you're getting actual context and not um, fantasy. Mm. Uh, and uh, But uh, so th- that is among the things he helps contribute to cinema's grander history. And again, uh, you know, cracks with Gone with the Wind aside because I understand that people do enjoy that movie and I'm not here to take away your movie. Um, he is slowly but surely snaking his way through Hollywood's history without even touching the horror film. And he finally decides, you know what? This was fun, David, Uh, but you do too many amphetamines, so I'm going to leave now. (laughs) You're too hyper, man. I saw what you did to Hitch. (laughs) Um, You're driving him mad. You know he's going to Universal to make Saboteur to get away from you? (laughs) <laughs> and uh and his so he <laughs> look 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 i i i'm stressed i'm really fucking stressed this just this idiot <laughs> won't understand that i'm not going to work his way i'm going to work i took the, the roads and on the byway much more than this i did it my fucking way <laughs> and and i'm not going to you know what Fine, I'll make Spellbound because I want to work with Dolly. But other than that, I really could give two shits here at this point. <laughs> um, and actually, the thing about the thing about Selznick and the way he controlled people, what's interesting, though, is that he clearly respected Luton because when Luton decided to leave, he not only supported that decision, he said, Get me on the phone with RKO. I'm going to negotiate your contract. <laughs> and he got him a very nice deal. To the point where Luton was placed into the head of RKO's horror unit. And RKO's horror unit, uh, uh, overseen by RKO at large, um, by Charles Croner, uh, who at this time had replaced uh, the original, uh, the uh, the previous president of the company, Schaefer, who, let's just say he got into trouble uh, financially and uh, reputation-wise, for dealing with a genius, because <laughs> uh, yes, the uh, the 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 reason RKO goes with somebody like Luton, amongst other decisions they make, is because they uh, made a decision with Citizen Kane and with Magnificent Ambersons to bet hard on Wells, along with uh, other uh, uh, challenging and innovative projects, and Citizen Kane was by no means a critical failure, but it was not a box office like smash. Um, given the reputation of what Wells had brought to radio with War of the Worlds and to the theater world at large in the 30s during the Federal Theater Projects and then beyond into the Mercury, he Citizen Kane is not the result they wanted. On top of which, the whole thing with a paper baron trying to interfere with free speech and such. Um, and... Uh, Magnificent Ambersons is also in the similar vein because Magnificent Ambersons is a film that would have been amazing had it not been torn to shreds. We talked a little bit about this on our last discussion because, mm-hmm. you know, he looks at Robert Wise and goes, you motherfucker. <laughs> and he's like, I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. I, I, I needed a job, man. <laughs> yeah. Kids got to eat. in Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby got to eat, bro. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had enough of this insolence. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so, yeah, their RKO overhauls. They they kick Wells out. 
and they go under the new banner showmanship instead of genius which means give me money not art <laughs> or something yep. to that nature uh and luton is brought into the horror unit which basically they give him this simple task we're going to give you a horror title because we got to compete with universal but we don't have enough money for universal horror level movies so we're going to give you this money and this title and you figure this out among the first titles they get is cat people <laughs> and luton's looking at this going like well shit uh i do <laughs> not have the money for a cat costume uh that will look convincing and not stupid uh so belly enough for a cat <laughs> that, they are able to get a pre- a bunch of pretty big fucking cats though in that True. zoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean that that's like you know ported. Over. You know what they took that off of the Citizen Kane set. You know Orson Welles was just <laughs> like, look, I don't I don't agree with your decision to uh, replace me with somebody like Luton, but I do like the idea of atmosphere. So let me give you the animals from Kane Zoo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I keep them in my own house. <laughs> they're doing nothing. Yeah, they're, they're they're just layabouts. They do nothing. They certainly don't <laughs> contribute money to my next production. <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly can't eat them. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, within those limitations, he instead opts for psychological terror in lieu of physicalized terror. Universal Monsters at this time had been kind of rebooted thanks to the Wolfman and um, uh, Son, of Fra- Son of Frankenstein and other developments after that double feature that happened at the, uh, at the um, New York theater. So... RKO's having to look at all this and go like, well, shit, like, let's compete. We've got a little small unit. We can do this. Luton gives them an option of how about we scare people without the need for gothic monsters and hokey makeup, in which Jack Pierce hears that and goes, fuck you, but because <laughs> my makeup's amazing. What have you done with your life? <laughs> um, and uh, so that cat people ends up being a huge success for them. On such a low budget, it makes enough money to justify these further decisions that Luton makes. Um, now, these films that we're discussing, in particular, Isle of the Dead, comes near the back half of this nine-movie slate where Luton is making these horror movies that will change the landscape of horror and, in their time, are very popular um, and from a financial standpoint. Um, and he actually breaks away at a certain point from after curse of the cat people. He does two films, Mademoiselle Fifi and youth one runs wild, which are not within the horror genre. Um, and Mademoiselle Fifi is actually Robert Wise's solo directorial debut. Uh, and youth runs wild is directed by today's director, Rock Robeson. So, Luton kept the clan tight, man. You know, like he he kept his group together. You know, mm. he he enjoyed the work that he was getting out of these guys. Um, but you know, Youth Runs Wild and Mademoiselle Fifi are not specifically well regarded today, and they certainly really weren't then. Um, and the previews for Mademoiselle Fifi were not well received. The box office was was just as bad. And it was the worst grossing film of Luton's career. Um, although people like AG liked it. So it wasn't like completely like, like it's not the, it's not a like a 0%. It's not the movie separation in theaters now, but you don't need to go to it. Cause why bother? Um, True. 
Yeah, instead you can, you know, I don't know, sit at home and do anything else with your time. Um, but um, yeah, I, I hated that movie. But um, the uh, but so he comes back into the horror fold that's at this point, and at the time that he returns to this, RKO lands a deal with Boris Karloff for three pictures. So they get they get Karloff coming off of the success of Arsenic and Old Lace on Broadway. Um, sadly, not the movie version. Um, movie's fine, but we could have had, we could have, we could have had the joke about him looking like Boris Karloff work. You <laughs> <Yep>. see, <laughs> it would have been great. Um, and, um, uh, but yeah, no, they, he signs a deal with them and Luton doesn't seem to be too hot on this idea at first until Boris Karloff basically tells him, like, I love what you've done with these these horror movies because I'm tired of that hokey makeup over at Universal. It's all a bunch of bullshit. So I I tell you what we do. We'll make the scariest of your scariest movies imaginable. I'm Boris Karloff and I approve this whole endeavor. So I'm going to I'm going to snatch bodies for you and I'm going to walk on dead islands for you my friend. And that's what he does. Uh they they have an admiration and a mutual friendship based upon the idea that they are stepping away from what Universal is currently doing. Right now Universal is going into monster mash madness. Um mm. whether that's teaming up the Wolfman with Frankenstein or sticking Drac, Frank and Wolfie into the same film for House of Dracula or House of Frankenstein. So they are uh, they are really running their concepts into the ground, which is not what the Universal movies started off as. Um, and Karloff had really lost the respect for it when doing House of Frankenstein and seeing the way the story was unfolding. And, you know, I, I, I love Universal monster movies, but those ones in the back half are a rough sit at times oh, yeah. um, because you, you are aware of what you were watching earlier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, yeah. It's not until Bud and Lou come in where I'm like, this is fun again at the very least. Like it's not True. depressing to watch. Um, and uh, don't forget as well. Um, Karloff was quite happy to get away from this, not just because of the sliding quality, but also because it was practically killing him. Yeah. They were asking in the a bad physical. Shape. Yeah. And funny enough, that actually ties into something about this production that I was, I I found this very interesting, and and this shows you how much more that I need to learn about Luton, as I guess we all do, because you know, I between both of us, like we're we're still very much Luton newbies. Oh yeah, and definitely. Like even even having watched all of them myself, like I only went through most of them once, apart from Body Snatcher and Cat People. And um and zombie and so like I don't like sit with these films every day, but um to think about Body Snatcher and Isle of the Dead for a second, these films are shot concurrently, um <laughs> yeah. and production at at one point halted because Karloff suffered it was suffering from injuries because of all the stuff that he was asked to pull at Universal. Yep. Um, so it's like the after effect, and that's when he's just like, "I'll never work for, I'll never work for that studio again. I'm not absolutely, positively, never gonna fucking do it. No, yeah, no, now not even what cut to Abbott and Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff, but you know that 
it's fine. He's hanging out with Bud and Lou. Like, I'm sure he was like, oh, this is kind of a hoot and a holler, actually. Hey, hey, you know, can you do that who's on first routine for me again? <laughs> like, that's, that's one of I, my favorite Bud and Lou films as well. Meet the Killer Boris Carl? Yeah. Oh, definitely. wow. That's a good one. I, um, I, amidst the monster films, I actually like the Invisible Man one a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah, but outside of Monster Realm, Who Done It will be my will always be my top Bud and Lou movie because it's a murder in a radio station, and I'm I'm attracted to that. <laughs> yep, <laughs> um, it's the basis for Radioland Murders, which is the greatest radio old time radio movie we can still watch right now without feeling awkward and creepy. Um, <laughs> True. And yeah, uh, God damn it. Anyway, though, Karloff though. What's interesting about Isle of the Dead in particular, as they're shooting these things concurrently, Isle of the Dead didn't start with the story we ended up getting. It was originally supposed to be an adaptation of Carmilla, which is a vampire novel, which this sounds like it would have never gotten made anyway. <laughs> True. It's, a, it's the a, Hays Code are really into everything by this time, aren't they? Yeah. Now you and you and I have both watched Dracula's Daughter. That yeah. barely got by on the skin of its teeth. I'm, yes. I want to Fangs. pitch. Kev, do you, can you give people the basic pitch of Carmilla? <laughs> Carmilla was just a lesbian vampire in the short, yeah. long and short of it, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> Let's face it, homosexuality wasn't going to go down well at all in Hollywood land in 1945. No, not even close. Um, not even sh- if you're James Whale. No, well, well, it, he, <laughs> we, 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 I think he got away with more than we thought he did. <laughs> <laughs> he did pretty well for himself. The more, yeah, but like, but yes, you're right. You're not getting away with it. Dracula's daughter is the closest it gets otherwise. And then like, yeah. and and as and outside of Universal, Hitchcock got away with it so many times. And I think they just thought like, well, that's some quirk, quirky British humor. And he goes, yeah, quirky, right? Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it's not intentional at all, guys. Wink. <laughs> I'm not trying to fool you for later generations. Wink. Um. But no, Carmilla is a story. It's a novel by Sheridan Lafanu, because I don't speak French. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, a tale about a young woman who is preyed upon by vampire by a female vampire, um, and the novel is actually a loose inspiration for Carl Dreyer's Vampire, which is a wonderful film. And I almost did this last night, which is put on Vampire and Isle of the Dead side by side and see if any of these could even possibly connect and mesh. And I still think it would be impossible because Carmilla, what 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 Isle of the Dead ends up becoming has bare bones resemblance to what the Carmilla outline would have been and the treatment would have been. Um, mm. And what's more, because of the fact that he was going to transport the setting of Carmilla from Styria in 1872 to the American colonies in 1756. And the only reason I now still want this movie, Kev, is because Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter was a disappointment to say the fucking least. <laughs> but Val Luton doing American Revolutionary Vampire movie? I th- I don't care if it wouldn't have had the ambiguity. I kind of want it. <laughs> yeah, you see, there's these the 10 horror movies, and then there's this one that's out of its fucking mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Let's face it, they were never going to give him the budget to do a period thing anyway. Yeah, Kerner's just like, look, I love you, man, but Mademoiselle Fifi did jack shit. Uh, I can't can't justify George Washington transforming into a vampire. I just can't do it. Oh, you think it's going to be Mar... (laughs) I th- you think it's going to be Mrs. Washington. No, I'm sorry. The code will not allow that. It would have to be George. And no, we still can't afford it. Also, what is he going to have? Wooden wooden vampire teeth? Come on, Val. Get with it. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose um, the, closest, the closest you get as far as the similarities in themes is with um, Thea and Mrs. Mary St. Aubin mm-hmm. in Isle of the Dead. There is something between them. I'm not quite sure what was going on there well it's it's i mean on the surface it's the caretaker kind of relationship obviously but yes as we talk about the plot here in a minute there's Hmm. there's some intriguing thematics going on although luton doesn't luton and robeson don't lay into it the way dracula's daughter does or the way hitch does. oh definitely not um or even the way Tenor lays into the sexual themes that are possessed in cat people. Um, yeah. So um, I think what's interesting is that like the bare bones play to a different effect. So it's almost like all some of the ideas remain. Obviously, the plague remains, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, also elements of like a priest or some kind of force trying to stop it, um, which if Carmilla had been done, Karloff would have been a side character. So it's interesting that like RKO was like signing on like a big horror star and going like, yeah, you're just going to play a priest who like, you know, wants the evil to stop. And it's just like, that's not interesting at all. Like I don't necessarily want to be a villain, but come on, this is fucking ridiculous. Um, (laughs) It didn't need to work out that way though, because eventually the treatment was, which was planned to be shot, shot in color uh, ended up growing way too ambitious, and also the line be- of ambiguity between supernatural and real was not really pr- present. It was very much a supernatural story, um, and it was scrapped. And in the trades, they announced that the new our first outing for Karloff and RKO would be Island of the Dead, an original story. Um, and within that, we can start talking about the plot of the film, um, let's go through this credit list because it's kind of insane. Um, what what interesting characters we've got here? First of all, directed by Mark Robson, produced by Val Luton, written by Ardell Ray, with uncredited writing by Val Luton and Joseph Michel, starring Boris Karloff, Ellen Drew, returning uh, subject from the Ballyhoo before, uh, Mark Kramer, Catherine Emery, Helen Thimming. Alan Napier, Jason yes. Robard Sr., Ernst Deutsch, and Skelton Nags. Oh, um, my. Yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. My 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 uh, avatar in this movie is Skelton Nags. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into it. Um, um and uh, with cinematography by Jack McKenzie, edited by Lyle Boyer, music by Lee Harline. Lee Harline is very interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, he is the only composer to deviate from the usual usage of Roy Webb, who was the favorite conductor over at RKO. 
All the yeah. Val Luton movies were produ- were had their music composed by Roy Webb except for this one. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Lee Harline is the reason we have a giant mega evil corporation that owns <laughs> all the properties and all the franchises because he wrote a single song. When you wish upon a... <laughs> I can't sing the entire thing. They keep coming after me. Yes, Har- Lee Harline, who wrote, writes a beautiful score for this movie, gets his start in uh, start with the uh, Mormon Mormon Tabernacle uh, or uh, Mormon Tabernacle Church uh, with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir conductor J. Spencer Cornwall, and. He then goes over to the West Coast and starts providing music for the transcontinental radio broadcasts that originate from there. So he's among the first to provide music for radio coast to coast. And he is then hired by Walt Disney, who goes, yeah, can you um, give me some music for my, you know, silly symphonies and shit? And uh, he provides the music for those wonderful, beautiful, groundbreaking cartoons. He, Frank Churchill, Paul Smith, then do the score for... Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And amongst the things that he helps write the music for uh, with lyricist Larry Morey is I'm Wishing, Whistle While You Work, Hi-Ho, Someday My Prince Will Come. And he reteams with that team for Pinocchio. The whole trio won the Academy Award for Best Original Music Score for Pinocchio. And Harline and Washington... Uh, Ned Washington won the Oscar for Best Original Song, When You Wish Upon a Star. And then Disney bought Marvel. And that's the end of the story, guys. Good night. (laughs) Um, He's also a a great composer for other films like Road to Utopia, Mr. Blanding's Build His Dream Home, uh, The Enemy Below, and uh, Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. (laughs) Uh, Quite a resume, to say the least. And I think here... In Isle of the Dead, you're a musician, Kev. I really like this score compared to other Val Luton scores. Right. Well, now I'm used to the um, Isle of the Dead by Rachmaninoff. Um, I ha- actually still have the LP somewhere. Um, it's very old. And um, it seems to play on similar themes it, to such an extent where I actually start to think, is this just... The Rachmaninoff, you know, uh, sort of restructured for the film. And it wasn't until I realised that, you know, this was actually composed for the film by Harline. um, And didn't think any further of it until I started digging into it. And apparently he was inspired by the Rachmaninoff track itself anyway. Yeah. Well, the suite. Yeah. Yep. And he took Um, themes and copies for the orchestration. Yeah. And he did it without violating the copyright. <laughs> <laughs> he dances around with it quite a bit. But yeah, um, and that's probably why it st- sounds so lush and romantic, you know. And, yeah. Um, some amazing use of the orchestra in this. Yeah. I, I, I think that the atmosphere here, because I, rewi- I I finally picked up uh, um, the... Uh, the body snatcher from scream factory. Cause like I, I, I've been open with this. I sold off a lot of my initial DVD collection for drinking money when I was younger. Cause I'm an idiot and I've had to reacquire <laughs> my Val Luton collection and body snatcher was one of the first ones I wanted to snatch up and no pun intended. 
and uh, listening to the score for um, uh, that one is a stark difference between this and Isle of the Dead. Like, there's oh yeah, it's a very different. There's very different tones, and I think that there's like, I think I walked with a zombie has a very interesting thing going on with it too. But this one in particular feels much more. I'm not a music expert, so bear with me, but like it feels a lot more unsettling than other Luton films do from the score alone. Not from the tone or from the mood of the visuals, mm-hmm. but the score. Um, and the way it melds into when silence comes into this movie, especially in one of the more terrifying sequences of this film. Um, and it only becomes high orchestra when it needs to like it only becomes like you know like riveting like like the strings going up and everything like in a high note uh when it needs to like it's absolutely sparing with that um and from there we'll jump into the plot of this film we open up on the balkan wars of 1912 now i do not have time to talk about the balkan wars of 1912 (laughs) (laughs) Because I neither have the college education, <laughs> nor nor the uh, nor the patience to try to suss through its politics. What I can tell you is that the film opens up in the Balkan Wars of 1912 with a prologue, which goes under conquest and op- <laughs> sorry under conquest and oppression. The people of Greece allowed their legends to degenerate into superstition, the goddess Aphrodite giving way to the Vorvalica. This nightmare figure was very much alive in the minds of peasants when Greece fought the victorious war of 1912. I want to stop there for a second, Kev, because we've got to talk about Vorvalica. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the... the Vorvalica's a, a, a lovely piece of folklore. And I don't know, you still see echoes of Vorvalica even today. Um, I'm thinking as far as uh, Vorvalica's are known for eating flesh, especially livers, which keeps them alive. Now, yeah. you think about Eugene Toombs in the X-Files, who would surface <laughs> every 70 years or so. Yep. <laughs> to take livers is pretty much um, a modern day Vavolica. Scully, it's a Vavolica. <laughs> Mulder, don't be ridiculous. There's no such thing as a Vavolica. This is not 1912. Scully, why can't you say Vavolica? It's very, very simple. <laughs> <laughs> not Greek. <laughs> See, that's why you just won't believe. Because you can't pronounce Vorvalica, and you're not Greek. That's why you can't believe. Um, yeah, um, it, it, uh, the, the way I had to go basic on this with Wikipedia on this, so I want to give a generalized description, too, if, if that's okay. Yeah. Is a harmful undead creature in Greek lo- folklore, and in Salento culture, in Salento, it is known as the Brucolico. Um it shares similarities with numerous other legendary creatures, but it is generally equated with the vampire of the folklore of the neighboring Slavic countries. While the two are very similar, Vervalikas eat flesh, particularly livers, rather than drink blood, as you said, with the livers, mm-hmm. uh, which combined with other factors such as its appearance bring it more in line with the modern concept of a 
zombie hashtag george romero now uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh i'm excited for twilight of the dead that'll be fun uh so yeah no this is basically like the way the way luton and robeson and ardell ray approach the varvolica is that of something that's like basically draining the life out of another because mm. given our visual abilities like they're not gonna you know val luton was not going to let somebody take somebody's liver out like that like they were not going to be oh, like look no. i'm going to show you here um ellen i need you to pretend to go over and eat somebody's liver can you do that for me no you find that disgusting i understand this is the 40s so they kind of use it like they use it more towards the vampire realm like the idea of like life-sucking energy which is why the carmilla uh, uh comparisons aren't like unfounded um but obviously it's been drained of its source material in favor of a more vague approach. Um, yeah. And the Vervalica will come to play because we open up first on the scariest of all generals ever. Dr. General, General Friedrichs. Friedrichs. Sorry. It's hard to pronounce his name when it's said, when it's written. Um, General yep. Friedrichs, played by Karloff, who is getting ready uh, to tell one of his uh, officers that he needs to go kill himself. Because. In the tent, in the tent that's from The Naked Gun. You have the same shadows going on in the background, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure the Naked Gun is actually a reference in Isle of the Dead. That'd be um, it wouldn't surprise me cuz the more I've got <laughs> the more I've dug into Zucker films and listening to interviews, the more I realize how actually astute they are with their film acumen. Like it is Oh yeah. <laughs> it is like watch the movie Brain Donors and you realize that they've been on point for a long time. It's just nobody was paying attention. Um, and his, here's my question though. Freedies is the watchdog. He is known as this watchdog yeah. and whatnot. Here's the thing that I, uh, noticed is that the, 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 the general that he's sending to his death <laughs> is like, kind of like delivering like excuse after excuse. Like that seems absolutely legitimate. But he doesn't have like the capacity to string each thought together, so he's just like, "Well, we were late, but we but we made it on time." But we were. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, oh, "I know you're gonna kill me. Please, please, no, don't kill me." And and you know, to his credit, he goes like, "No, no, no, you're going to do it yourself." <laughs> like, it's actually a crafty piece of foreshadowing as well. Yeah, like, it opens with him actually washing his hands. Yeah, he... which is something that pl comes into play quite soon yeah very very soon and what's more i love the thing he does with the gun he he grabs the gun yeah he looks at it he analyzes what he's got to do with this thing and then he turns it around on him and gives it to that to the, to that officer and you just see the officer walk out the tent and you hear bang and from there Karloff has to become the most charming murderous general imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he is in the presence of Oliver Davis, played by Mark Kramer. He was an American reporter for the Boston Star. And uh, right off the bat, <laughs> Oliver rightfully go so goes, was that really necessary? 
Just as a side note, the general that kill, has to go outside and shoot himself, uh-huh. don't you think he looks a lot like Lionel Stander, Max, from Heart to Heart? Yeah, he kind of <laughs> does. Wow. It, spooky. How old was that guy? I'm the, I don't know. I'm looking it up. Uh, I've got Eric Hans- Eric Hansen is the name. Let's see here if I can get this up. Yeah. It's a stage name. It's uh, Lionel. I'm telling you. Oh, God. He's I, actually 412. You know what? You might be right, <laughs> Kev, because I Googled Eric Hansen, and all I got was a baseball player <laughs> 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 who worked for the Mariners and the Reds and the Red Sox. So, yep. He doesn't look like a, ba- a baseball I, player to me. I think we've got an eternal on our hands, Kev, who's trying to keep his identity anonymous. <laughs> Nicholas Cage is out there as well. <laughs> the two the two immortals we need the most <laughs> yeah. Eric Nicholas Hansen. Cage and Lionel Stunder and yes. Nicholas Cage <laughs> <laughs> wink <laughs> I'm actually a Coppola um, <laughs> and uh, but yeah after the officer has gone kaput <laughs> Oliver goes like, dude, that was fucking brutal. And he's just like, well, I don't know Oof. what to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> G- General was a friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> he was my How best. Hard? Look, Eric was my best friend. I couldn't, I, I, I felt betrayed. I hate this cool world. Lisa, you're tearing me apart. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That was like a, it's a weird thing for him to go like, look, he was my best friend. And I'm just like, it. it is like. One of the comments that I remember firmly from the from our film club chat on it was like, "This guy ain't messing around." Like something of that to that nature. Like this, like this guy mm. is like a stone cold. Like he's a killer. We established up front that he does not hold sentiment the same way others do. It's compartmentalized yeah. for him, especially mm-hmm. when he tries to diffuse the situation with this reporter from Boston Star, going like, "No, no, no, I'm not a monster." Um, that was my previous life over at the other studio. I am more <laughs> of an efficient general here, um, and but um, that's probably why. But that's probably why he's such a success as a general because we now know that the enemy's in retreat, mm-hmm. and this is possibly because you've got somebody that has so much steel that he's able to get the job done. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, he's basically like, he's a general who's basically like tying up the loose ends to like unveil a perfect army and victory, like some kind of like superiority complex. It's not quite, it's not quite the, uh, uh, superiority of say a Hitler, but like, no, it's, but it, it, but it is that kind of like discipline that the military insists upon in, in a certain respect. Yeah. But in these days, it's very, very much like, well, you tripped over and fell over a log. Well, we got to shoot you now. Like that, that, that amount of like lack of regard. Um, and actually, really quickly, never thought I'd say this on this show, but speaking of Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> We we I overlooked the painting at the beginning that this whole movie is technically based oh, yeah. on, which is an emotional yeah. plot point in Adam's wonderful series, which is why we won't go into the emotional part of it. What I will tell you is is that this painting uh is based off of the painting by Bachlan, 
Uh, and the painting went over several different versions over the span of 21 years. The third version of this painting was eventually acquired, and I wrote this in my notes, acquired by noted asshole Adolf Hitler in 1933 and hung <laughs> in the Reich Chancellery in Berlin. So that's that like this painting has some fucked up history in terms of it's where it's been. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, we move along though. Uh, he, you know, again, Friedis goes like, no, 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 you've got the wrong idea about me. I am not a monster. Uh, I am. In fact, I had a wife and if you, if she were still alive, she'd tell you that I was not the kind of monster you are painting me out to be. Um, and, it, this comes about because Oliver's just like, you'd kill your wife, for, kill your kid and wife for country if you had to. And he's like, I had a wife. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, Ouch. Awkward. <laughs> yeah. And, and he. Oh, but it's okay. She's been dead for a while yeah, now. She's been dead for a while now. She thought I was uh, yeah, a teddy couple bear. Weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it is. One moment you're killing peasants for not paying their taxes. The next thing you're going home and uh, playing Scrabble with your wife. This is how things work around here. Uh, this is Reese. Now, <laughs> um, and he's just like, you know what? I love to, like, you know, he mentions my wife is buried around here at this island. You know that island that's off the coast of the of the of the battlefield and he goes the like one well, that looks like the painting yeah the one yeah you know that you know that <laughs> island over there that looks like that painting that uh some mustachioed asshole is going to have on his wall one day <laughs> um what? and charlie chaplin uh, no no the, the other the one. other one the other one the, the, <laughs> the one who the one who's unfortunately going to inspire a lot of bullshit in the 2020s um, still has a funny walk and he and he basically goes like well if you want to lay oliver goes like well i want to lay flowers at your wife's grave and he's just like well you can come with me if you want i was gonna go over there tonight and he makes a comment about like you're gonna go over there through the battlefield and he goes like you worried about me being an old man you also forget i'm an old soldier and they go walking across this battlefield, which uh, the commentary on this film on the Blu-ray version is done by Steve Haberman, who's a noted film historian. And he pointed to Goya's disasters of war prints as inspiration for this kind of like landscape that they find themselves in. And one of the things we find in amidst the battlefield is a cart full of bodies being hauled off by men. There's, yeah. a, there's a comment made about horses and why shouldn't they carry it? And he goes, well, did you see, War Horse? We can't afford all of the majestic horses that will carry us to victory. Um, no, he. what he says is that the, the horses uh, uh, won't know how hard they need to run and how fast they need to run to get this job done because those bodies are carrying the plague. Um or as it's known today, COVID-19. Now, uh, from there they go and they they get a confirmation of this whole affair um, from Dr. Drosis, uh, played by Ernst Deutsch, uh, who we would know from The Thin Man as Baron Kurtz. Yay! Or The Third Man, sorry, not The Thin Man, The Third Man. The Third Man, <laughs> Baron Kurtz, is not in The Thin <laughs> Man. 
Although that's a completely different no, no, mashup. No, I, I meant the third man, <laughs> but I said the thin man because they're so they're so similar. They're just one letter off. <laughs> but now I want Baron Kurtz in the thin man, and Nick and Char Nick and Nora have to stop him. <laughs> I, I think we should have Abbott and Costello turn up as well towards the end. <laughs> Carol Reed's just like, look, just dump it all into the barrel. (laughs) Selznick's producing this film, so he's just like, yeah, mix it up. (laughs) And uh, the yeah, they they get the they get Ernst Deutsch uh, confirming for them like we have to if we don't burn the bodies immediately because not only do we carry portraits of the plague, but there's other men in the other army. Every other man is carrying the plague. If we don't burn these bodies now, our victory is going to be nothing. So yeah. uh, right off the bat, we're getting the obvious allusions to the the most recent uh, memory that we've lived under for over a year and change of COVID. And mm. put a, putting aside... New York? Yeah, yeah. And put aside COVID for a second. Think of the 1918 flu pandemic. Yep. There's allusion right here immediately into that whole concept to the point where he's drawing off of any plague in general and how it was reacted to it's almost as if the way we react to these things has been cyclical and hasn't changed one bit because as we're going to find out the use of the vorvalica plays interestingly into the debate over whether people have the plague or they don't involve in, mm. in the regards to where they go um but Oliver's learned, hey, don't mess with don't mess with don't mess with the doc, man. You know? Wear your wear your yep. fucking mask. <laughs> Actually, he's the only one wearing a mask. Karloff <laughs> Karloff yeah. and Karloff and Kramer aren't wearing theirs. <laughs> but you see that that pays off later as, as well, you know. Yep. Exactly. Karloff doesn't follow the science. I do what's the math going to do? Is it it's just going to make it hard to breathe when I go to the supermarket? <laughs> well there's another part about this that i like as well the battlefield itself Mm -hmm. the way that it looks so stagey it's almost dreamlike and it reminds me of night of the hunter Mm. it's that same nightmarish look to it this the artifice which is very uh fairy tale yeah it and it it feels uh it, it i agree there's something up and and it adds to the uneasement un- of it. It works in like yeah. it it almost works in sort of opposition to certain elements of Night of the Hunter where it's creating this like idyllic setting and then the, and then Lawton's sticking yeah. in that monster inside. Um whereas on the other end of this is like there's there's some form of like small optimism crawling amidst the dirt and whatnot. I mm. I actually got, I I'll tell you we were talking about like how Scorsese, you know, draws some inspirations from Luton, and we'll talk about an obvious one later on. But I mentioned Warhorse. I don't think it's too unfair to assume Spielberg is a fan of <laughs> Val Luton because there are elements of certain portions of Warhorse that have this same kind of like unease and dreamlike look, thanks to mm. what he naturally does um, with Janusz Kaminski. And creates sort of a movie-like atmosphere, combined with the stark realism that's contained within the imagery itself. Yeah. Um, and um, 
And whereas like it, the the direct opposite of that is something like Wonder Woman, which I like Wonder Woman. It's a fine movie, but the No Man's <laughs> Land sequence uh, looks a little bit more clarified and not as like ambiguous. Like <laughs> it's it's pretty clear she's about to kick ass through No Man's Land and there's no like terror or plague about to hit her. <laughs> so um, True. Yeah. And they go like, well, we'll we'll be aware of this plague, but we're going to go to the island and pay respects to the wife I insulted. And <laughs> and they get they get on the boat and they go across and they are met at the gate by terrifying statues of uh I believe they're Greek gods like Phoebes like like there these the commentary described the statues of these dogs as the ones that guard the gates of the dead so like they don't allow the dead to leave um and Karloff even alludes to that in the line like the dead don't leave but we will uh and they go into the island and they discover that the graves have been defiled and Karloff is not happy <laughs> Freedies is pissed <laughs> and yeah. they are about to go back out of the island when they start hearing singing and Freedies goes like, well, the person who's singing must know what the fuck happened to my wife and her grave. And there's this slow, very deliberate shot that sees them going up towards this castle like fortress like yeah yeah it's, it's tower tower london fortress. place don't know <laughs> um, um, it's it's an establishment consistent of i learned this the the whole architecture of this place is designed to look like greek to have greek architecture and greek columns in it but also elements of other different areas that don't that don't pertain to Greece, so it's like melding yeah. a bunch of things. Now, I've actually made a note of this because I felt like the weird mixture of ancient and modern in this. You every now and again you will have a column, or even within the house you would have a statue at the end of the corridor for no apparent reason. Obviously, a, apart from being raised from uh crypt by the uh, uh, archaeologist yeah but <laughs> i like the way the way that this echoes the conflict that you've got within Karloff's character who is very mod modern very sort of forward looking you know and very much against suspicion yeah and very much a, a man of science and this is just a, about the same in the architecture of the film. You've got this whole supernature, like like you said, with the Cerberus. Um, yeah, the Cerberus, yes, that's right. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the Cerberus statue. <laughs> the dogs. You know, it's all there. <laughs> the dogs. Um, and yeah, it, yeah. It's, it plays out so well you're, you're, as that you're, as well. You're kind of, yeah, you're right. And you're throwing him into, you're throwing, uh, you're throwing the rational man into the irrational world. Yeah. And I I was curious to know how this plays to you and to myself for that. I, I, I kind of wondered this for myself and I don't really have a firm answer is how the plot going forward 
sits with you in a world that we've lived in over a year and a half? And I think that answer will kind of come over time. But I found it interesting to the way the film is constructed to throw a rational man off his guard with the irrational, even though we know what happens with this film and how those lines, again, are blurred by the ambiguity that mm. Luton's films possess. Um, but And... They fall as they're following. By the way, the the singing and whatnot, we get these like tracking shots, these beautiful movements. The like a Luton movie moves with a fluidity to it. It feels like yeah. it's an experience rather than a film at times. Like there's two gorgeous tracking shots. The the first of which is the battlefield where it's a dolly. I would mm-hmm. imagine that goes right along the battlefield and walks next to um, Karloff as he's going across. And I, I reckon this second shot where, again, it's echoing uh, Greek mythology because the siren song, it's mm-hmm. practically that. And and it, I, I think that there are those obvious notes of like different things calling to him. What I like is that they're not played as, um belittling to the audience like they they are they are specifically designed to create an atmosphere of mood and terror that only draws you further in because it does unnerve you yeah that's the thing about the sound design in this movie too specifically the sound design in this film is unsettling much like many val luton films if not all of them yeah there is at mm. least one moment that unnerves you from the sound design. In this particular case, it deals a lot with the uh, with either like far off away voices, whether in song or in something else. We'll get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one being like isolated sounds, like the dripping of water or the creaking of wood. And because this film is in is already blossomed into the world of sound film. It's not like a universal monster movie where I had to kind of learn these tricks. And I've talked about this with Hitchcock, select sound, um, trying to create some form of pure cinema. Now, I don't know Luton's theory on pure cinema or whether it really even crossed his mind. He clearly knew, along with the creative team, how to take the sound out where needed. Because... We only mm. hear what we need to hear. We don't hear anything frivolous or ancillary. Definitely. When you think about the bus in uh, Cat People, you don't oh, yeah. hear the bus approach at all. Nope. You don't hear the bus approach. Um, you he- you barely hear anything lurking about in the pool apart from exactly. the splash of the water. Yeah. And at mm. certain points, you don't hear anything apart from one particular one splash, and then her scream. He's yeah. it's like it's when you sense when I mean I, again like I'm I know enough about sound to understand that when you deprive yourself of certain elements of it, what you're left with feels amplified because it's the only thing you're hearing, and yeah. so it's 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 like el- eliminating parts of a sense. And here, Luton uses it to scare the pants off you. Um, and they follow this song into the into the house of this tower, uh, this tower castle menagerie, <laughs> yeah. uh, country home, and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they come across uh, come upon 
well, first they are led in by Madame Kira and they meet the Swiss archaeologist, Dr. Obrecht, played by Jason Robards Sr. Uh, <laughs> now, that confused me because when I first saw Jason Robards on the cast list, uh-huh. of course, I was looking for the Jason Robards we know. Yeah. <laughs> who I didn't know was Junior. <laughs> like, oh yeah, no. This I mean, again, we, we it's possible we're dealing with another Eternals scenario, but like mm, I, I don't possible. Think, you know, no. like, it, well, it, it, we've got it was subsequently no, noted that it was Jason Robard Senior, but yes, obviously no. at the time there was no Junior, so. Huh. Yeah, no. There, this is this is not the this is not the the two time winning actor that we've known from such films as Tora Tora Tora, um, and All the President's Men. But what this is is his father, Jason Robards Sr., who, uh, born in Michigan, gets into acting after being trained at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and appears in a slew of films. Um, ranging all across the like he actually from 1921 into 1961 he works pretty steadily and this is like a partial filmography that i have up he's in films like sky patrol corruption ship of wanted men uh he he's in mr blanding's bills dream home so he's working with harline in some point <laughs> again yeah uh and uh uh the mad empress he's in a serial called the fighting marines in 1939 uh, so he, 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 he worked the steady craze as a character actor. Um, and, uh, right here, he is an archeologist who has been, he f- settled upon this Island because of all the treasures it possessed from the era of Homer and going forward, like dating back to Homer. Um, and Karloff doesn't care about archeology, span um, and he goes like, no, I want to know what happened to these graves. And he goes like, oh, well, uh, funny thing about uh, your the graves there. Uh, they're, they're loaded with antiques, boy. And uh, I <laughs> offered money to the peasants, and the peasants took that as permission to defile these graves and uh, burn the corpses. <laughs> And he and he tries to like deflect it, going like, "Look, it's my bad. I apologize." And Karloff goes like, um, "They are the ones who did it. They are the ones who must face punishment." And he 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 just basically shoves it off, goes like, "Look, look, man. Like I've already paid the price. I don't profit off of these things anymore. It's mu- it's better to just live with them." The only thing I've really bought is this house from Madame Kira, who I have asked to stay on, so we keep the house Greek. And this doesn't really satisfy Karloff. Mean, yeah, but meanwhile, while he's having this conversation, he's actually got the head of yet another piece of work in his hands. Yeah. He's just... <laughs> <laughs> this so was off still your got wife's booty. grave. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like if I went to it, it's like if somebody went to me and go like okay sorry Zach here's the headstone of your great of your grandfather that you love very much and I'm just kind of fumbling around in my arms like oh and you know that cross he was buried with yeah I'm just using that for a back scratcher right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> like well that's absolutely monstrous how dare you <laughs> but Who's, who stole him a dinner mm-hmm. No, God, no, not me. <laughs> yeah. Just see a little not me ghost with his mouth full. 
<laughs> Family circus jokes always work on the radio. <laughs> and the uh, uh, they but they get into like they. I mean, again, Albrecht pushes this off to the side. Like he's really trying to be like, now, now, now. <laughs> You're a tired war man, and you need dinner. <laughs> so come and join the rest of the refugees from your battle. <laughs> like that's the thing. Everybody in the house, apart from Freedies and Oliver, are refugees in one form or another from the battle yeah. that has been taking place. Amongst the gentlemen and ladies who we have uh, at this dinner table, first of all. Um, we have Mrs. Mary St. Alban. We have Thea, played by Ellen Drew. We have Andrew Robbins, played by Scott Nags, <laughs> who would give anything in the world for a whiff of fish and chips. I don't feel Unbelievable. so well. <laughs> and I'm I mean, sorry if... I had- I'm sorry if UK Ugh. listeners were offended by my impression, but here's the thing. I'm not far off here. <laughs> I I was offended by his impersonation of a cockney, so much so that I checked out who Skelton Nags was, only to find out that he's English. And he, I was thinking, but that's a worse accent than Dick Van Dyke. How the hell did you manage to get that bad? <laughs> don't, don't you know, Kev? It's very, very simple. <laughs> Do you understand what happened when Dick Van Dyke was looking for inspiration? He turned to he my movies. Yeah, and he, definitely. And he said, but, you know, he is, he is like, he, this Nags guy, looking further into him, he went uncredited in a bunch of films, not the least of which is other Val Luton films like The Ghost Ship. Uh, he's in The Invisible Man's Revenge as a cabman, um, and he is in House of Dracula as Stimel. And he, anytime he worked with Luton, it seemed like he went uncredited. So it's almost like Luton so, was just like, I'm embarrassed to have your name attached to this, but you need to play this role. So <laughs> so it's actually a direct, uh, yet another direct connection between Val Luton and Universal in that case. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the Universal horrors. Universal <laughs> told me to tell you that you're doing it wrong. Val, you need a monster in here. <laughs> Can't afford it. Yeah, God. It, yeah, sorry. Look, Nags, you you seem like a uh, a nice, albeit annoying gentleman, but <laughs> we can't afford it. I'm sorry, but he Nelton Nags sells tin, Robbins as his name in the movie sells tinware. Robbins ain't no rubber. <laughs> tinware. I think it's for like. You know, like for like like uh, uh, cups and such, like or like things you would carry into battle, or something like that, like or like plates and like 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 dishware, like fork, fork. I've got a fork. I mean, I could imagine if he was making helmets, yeah. maybe. Ooh, tin helmets, huh? Could Possible. That, maybe he uh, made the maybe maybe he made the titular tin cup for the movie Tin Cup. <laughs> or maybe the tin man for the wizard of oz yes i did (laughs) i made jack haley jr jack haley you're welcome (laughs) and now you can deal with his son who will then marry (laughs) who will then marry judy garland's daughter and it'll be weird for like a good couple of years (laughs) 
and then the other people we have here uh on the on the at the dinner table we can't we can't overlook the biggest uh tallest person in the room mr saint alban played by alan napier yes wow the legend and keeps who, Alan Napier is going to become a staple because we just uh, it hasn't been released yet, but we'll have already talked about him a little bit with Batman because uh, we talked about Batman nineteen sixty six in the movie. Um, but how? What's your what's your knowledge on Napier's background prior to his um, his time in the Batcave? <laughs> uh, apart from um, not the Innocence, I'm trying to think what it's called now. Uh, the it's the Ray Milland film. Oh my word! Begins with W. Uninvited. Um, oh yeah, the, the <laughs> Uninvited. Which begins is with W. I, the I, Uninvited. I've still never seen it, but it has been popping it's fantastic. up. Fantastic. God, it's on Scorsese's list of the hundred films. Oh, right. Or the the oh, eleven films that scared the pants off of him. Mm-hmm. And I and no, it's a. I don't think it's as good as The Haunting. Uh, but well, it's certainly got a similar vibe to the Innocents, yeah. And it's got Ray Milland. Oh, I, I I do like Ray Milland. You know, he fought off a horde of frogs in the movie Frogs, and it's wonderful. <laughs> yes, but it, well, funnily enough, Ray Milland is as well. He was a big hitter in 1945, the same year as this, because he did Lost Weekend. Yep, won his Oscar for that wonderful Billy yeah. Wilder movie. Yeah. Oh my word. The only thing I like more than The Lost Weekend is the Benny parody of The Lost Weekend where Jack and Ray <laughs> pretend that they've gone mad from drink. It's really funny. It's like the last episode before they bring back the regular singer on the program after he returns from the Navy. And Ray Milland is just allowed to cut loose. Like This is after his Oscar <laughs> win. He's allowed to have some fun, especially after playing a role that realistic for the time. That movie's great. Fuck. Yeah, ah, I do like. I love Lost Weekend. Um, Napier for but me, yeah, like, pa- yeah, yeah. Apart from that, that's it. Yeah, I got to be honest. Like, he's the, just Batman. The yeah, he, he's just he's just Alfred the Butler, man. He's just there to yeah. Also, let people into the Batcave at times because I'm pretty sure he's done that. <laughs> but um, he's also he is also in Orson Welles's Macbeth, which I've seen. I haven't rewatched it recently, but it was going to be on my list when I did Wells at a time. Uh, and also, he is in Cat People. So, um, and really, now, I I don't remember who he plays in Cat People. That's the thing. I can't either. <laughs> Let's see. No. Napier, Napier. Actually, oh, Doc he's... Carver. Doc Carver. Right. He just goes no, on he's credited. also in. Uh, he's also in another. Um, Oh God! Is also in another Ray Milland film, Ministry of Fear. Ministry from of the Fear. year before, nineteen forty-four. Oh, you're gonna hate me! I haven't seen this one either. Yikes! That's amazing. That uh, Criterion do a really good disc on that. Ooh, and I gotta go by there to pick up some food. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, he he is playing the British diplomat here. Uh, the or the uh, the the British diplomat, the head of the British consulate, and he congratulates Freedies on the battle and goes like, "Well, yeah, but it was very inconvenient for our travel." And I'm like, "Really? <laughs> That's not the joke." You, this this man makes his friends kill themselves. <laughs> Shh. 
Yeah. <laughs> you don't th- you think he's going to care about your wife? He only cares about his wife whose grave was defiled. He's not in a good mood. <laughs> yeah. Don't get frivolous with this guy. Yep. But and the big <laughs> do, now's not the time for a joke. You you wait in, <laughs> you wait until the 60s when you're in a bat cave and you are allowed to go absolutely nuts. But they're not going to let you do that because you're not the funny part of the show. <laughs> but don't worry. You get to dress as Batman at least three times. Because <laughs> why not? <laughs> <laughs> He'll pass for a Batman, no problem. Because William Dozier was just like, sure, why can't Alfred be Batman? It, why, who is going to care? It's not like anybody's going to have any issues with any creative decisions we as these creators of these television and r- movie properties make regarding beloved characters. Nobody's going to fuss. Nobody's going to bitch. Nobody's cut <laughs> to the internet. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, they <coughs> all settle in for wine. And uh, uh, Thea is the one serving the wine, but Thea refuses to serve it to Frides. And this Ooh, she's does not. Petulant. This Oof. is not no. please Frides. Um, no. But Oliver's like, well, say Thea, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I think well, there's going to be a love story. <laughs> do you blame him? It's Ellen Drew. My word, she it's, is a bit breathtaking. It is Ellen Drew. Now we talked a little bit about her before on the Buck Benny Rides Again episode, but we didn't go far into it because one, we all know what I was talking about that day. Number two. Uh, she's not wonderful in that movie, but it's because she's given virtually a terrible character to play. Um, but born in Kansas city, (laughs) she worked a bunch (laughs) of jobs and won a beauty contest upon beauty contest upon beauty contest before becoming an actress. She moves to Hollywood and then she gets discovered while working in an ice cream parlor where one of the customers who was William Demarest took notice of her and gave and helped her get into films. Um, she became a fixture at Paramount starring in films like sing you sinners, the ladies from Kentucky. Uh, she worked with people like Ronald Coleman. Uh, she worked with Robert Preston in the movie, the night of January 16th and night plane from Chung King. Um, and as said before, she was with Jack Benny and Buck Benny rides again. She's unfortunately the victim of a very outdated type of love plot in that movie. <laughs> Um, but, yeah. uh, she, uh, she also did work on radio. She's in, uh, a adaptation of uncle Henry's Rosebush for suspense with Agnes Moorhead. Um, and she, she stops working in 1957 and seems to have kind of basically just faded from the spotlight after that. Um, she's very beautiful, very luminous, very striking, and in this movie, unlike Buck Benny Rides Again, she's at, given a lot to do and uh, not mm. to just be the object of somebody's affection. She is given a very integral plot point. And this all comes about at first when, first of all, Oliver's just like, you know what? I haven't had a bath and I need a bath because the last time I had a bath, General, was when I stole a bucket of water from your horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which... A shame that that horse wasn't able to smell nice for all the lady horses, but you know, whatever. I mean, it's war. You know, it does crazy things to men and horses, <laughs> <laughs> as we found out. And 
general is just like i've got to get back to my men and and he's just like well let's stay a while and he's like well i guess i could do whatever i need to do tomorrow it's not like my men need me or anything whatever let's stay on this island um yeah that's one thing as well you we've not really touched on the fact that he's gone over to this like spooky island that's for the dead yeah at night (laughs) i mean the nads on this guy He's got balls of steel. Yeah, it's 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 like, look, look, Kale. Here's what you don't understand. I've been able to, amongst other things, <laughs> fight fight a Bella Lugosi, fight Alon Cheney, <laughs> fight 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 a numerous amount of monsters. You don't think I can handle a spooky island? <laughs> True. I yeah. I think I can handle this brilliantly (laughs) and if you have a problem with me wanting to kick back and hear some old gossipy supernatural tales from my childhood well bring it on it's either that or this guy is the og goth and the only place you're gonna find him at night is hanging out in a graveyard somewhere with all the cool kids oliver did you steal my good charlotte album (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, where's my chemical romance i need my my chemical romance anyway uh back to the island of the dead though and not to boris Karloth goth although teenagers <laughs> <laughs> scare the living shit out of me they don't care less as long as, as, long as someone will bleed <laughs> and um, they all decide to retire for the night. Now, uh, amongst the things that everybody's going to bed, we reveal in this moment that Thea is the caretaker for Mary St. Aubin, who is Mr. St. Aubin's wife, and she suffers from an incurable disease that is slowly draining her life away. And part of the establishment of all this is really to the fact that she is incurable no matter what. Yep. And once the plague enters the picture, combined with the Vorvalica, it creates all of the mass confusion and the ambiguity, to which lays into the question, well, is it a Vorvalica? Is it the plague? Is it her sickness? What the heck's going on? Yeah. It's also hinted at with the fact that she's cold and then the other one's hot. You know. And- yeah. Uh, mm. uh, Kira describes it as like one of them is cold and the other one is filled with uh, yeah. is hot and filled with blood. <laughs> mm. And I'm just like, I don't know, she doesn't have that same complexion there. Maybe there's a version <laughs> of the film where Luton tan tinted Ellen Drew's cheeks to be red. <laughs> it's like a George Milliers thing. She's oh, like, wow. by, this is for the special edition guys in the future, but uh, <laughs> hope nobody loses this print. <laughs> and, uh, uh, the uh, and it's even described as like the red and rosy, and we reveal that we reveal in that too that General Frides does not believe in these superstitions of Kira. These are the stories he heard as a young man, and we learn more about that in regards to his beliefs in a little while. But it doesn't stop him from checking in on Thea walking around the house at night to get the medicine for Mary. And there's this 
intense conversation in the hallway between them where she reveals why she didn't serve the wine to him. Her reasons have nothing to do with a verbalica or a, you know, plague or anything. It has to do with the fact that he is such a merciless general that he was killing people in the town for not paying their taxes. And they get into the discussion of they were Greeks. And he goes, anyone who doesn't follow Grecian law is not a Greek. And there's there's obviously this whole like element of like just like d- discussing like what nation what does patriotism mean what does loyalty mean etc mm. etc like and those very elements, hard line yeah and those elements combined with what we continually experience within current politics or politics of the past of what does loyalty look like and what does it actually represent he's shoving well, like Boris Karloff. <laughs> <laughs> Boris Karloff for president <laughs> complete with his curly hair make America Boris again <laughs> thinking about it is his hair actually naturally curly because it's very wobbly all over the place in this film and if, you, if you're I asking, don't think I've ever seen it like this any other time well, it's always I, slicked back I borrowed something from my good friend Harpo he told me that I could have that wig so long as I gave him a knife so that he could take out Zeppo. That, it was a very, very convoluted thing. He ended up not getting Zeppo. Zeppo became a talent agent, but still. You know, I, yeah, the hair is interesting. It's, it's, um, it's unique for him. Yeah. But it's it, a weird choice. Whole, but it, but it, I will, I will tell you it kind of, helps with him in his performance i don't know why it's because it, it doesn't distract me it yeah. puts me off at first because i've never seen him do that before mm. once you watch it though it's it, he feels like he's not going to be his normal villain character because that's the thing about karloff in this movie he's not really the villain he's no, not at all not a great guy but he is not our bad guy in fact one could argue that there is no bad guy in this movie, like traditional or it's not like the body yeah. snatcher where clearly he is like, no, I'm, I'm bringing uh, you dead not. bodies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very nuanced. Um, I think that's because all the characters in this feel quite rounded. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nobody that feels like they're, pretty much a foil if you like i yeah. mean even we've not even mentioned the tin man and his stumble up the oh yeah stairs he stumbles on the way to bed he stumbles upstairs he's not feeling oh, oh i feel sick oh no yeah. maybe it's my accent or maybe it's the plague i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but even even that little piece there you know it it does have uh, repercussions, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because obviously it, it it's then se- said is um, an actual symptom of the septi- sepsis, well, sepsis, sepsis, the sepsis mm. of uh, which has several. <laughs> the commentary on this film is wonderful because Steve Haberman lists off the symptoms, and at <laughs> one point he goes, "Wait, I'm not done yet." <laughs> and he goes through another list and i'm like it's best to just say they get fucking sick and yeah you know and so like 
you know, if this movie needed a plague, you know, he goes to Robin's the Tin Man and goes, why, Tin Man, you brought sepsis all along. <laughs> um, so Robin's dies in the middle of the night. Hmm. And as everybody awakes the next morning after Thea's had his her conversation with um with Freedies, he has died, and what's more, it is suspected that this is from the plague, so they bring in Dr. Drosis again, played by Ernst Deutsch, and we get this big confrontation scene about like the bottom line is is that until we have that this is the the Soraka has to arrive before anybody can leave this island. The Soraka is the hot wind. This disease is carried by fleas, which have consistent of eighty percent of moisture in their bodies. So if the hot air blows them away, the threat is gone. They can get off the island. Um, yeah. And so, Doctor 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 Drosis is just like, all right, nobody's going to leave the island. Nobody can leave the island until the Soraka arrives, and. So Freedies takes over and goes, no one may leave the island. <laughs> and everybody raises a hand, first of all, obviously. Saint Aubin, the St. Aubins are like, excuse me, but my wife is an invalid. No one may leave the island. Yeah, but what if we need to go to the market? No one may leave the island. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no <that's> one. <laughs> I love how he keeps cutting. I love the cutting where he keeps cutting back to it like, no. but How many times yeah. do I have to tell you? <laughs> Nobody can fucking leave. It, I'll say, yeah. It, it, no, also, no. six feet of pot, idiot. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, they, they've already they've already established. Okay, we're trapped on this island now. We can't get out. We cannot get out. And we start cutting into the first of many hand washing sequences in this film that are not, you know, him washing his hands before he's going to hand a gun to his friend to kill himself. That's never <laughs> yeah. leaving my mind. It's just like, how do you do that to your friend? <laughs> I'm I'm Oliver in that scenario going like, the fuck? <laughs> it's, it's a basic um, preventative measure, measure, though, isn't it? And yes, it's exactly. Something that is thought, yeah, right. Well, what we need to do is we're stuck here. We need to be really practical really quickly. We've already got a corpse in the house. So that means there's possibility that the fleas are around here as well. Yeah. And that they could be you know, on I'd... you. So we can't really be within vicinity of, of each other. We should probably practice basic hygiene. Yeah. Um, you know, make sure that everything's going fine. But that doesn't interest Kira because she goes, wash your hands all you want. You can't wife, wash away the evil that's been brought upon us. <laughs> like, just like, geez, Kira, way to kill the fucking mood. <laughs> like, we could have optimism here and you are bringing dread further down. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I mean, there was really uh, sort of, what's the word? They're really superstitious about it when she says that, um, oh, God. Now then, what is his name again? Skelling's uh, character. Hang on. Yeah. But she, she, so here's where we get into the whole three-way debate on what is going on in the movie. Because it all mm. happens in this hand-washing sequence. So Kira's yeah. obviously like Vorvalica. And yeah. Dr. Albrecht is like, well, now I don't necessarily believe in the gods. But maybe we should just pray to the gods. <laughs> <laughs> and Croesus is just like giving the scientific breakdown of what the plague is. And 
Albrecht brings up the fact that like it doesn't account for everything that people on this island would believe. It uh, they recall back to the fact that Kira mentioned the Vorvalica. Croesus explains what the Vorvalica is, and Boris Karloff is just like he's laying into the he's again doubling down like I don't I believe the doctor I believe science, and yeah. Albrecht proposes a wager of like why don't we why don't we make a bet here like I'll pray to Hermes and you follow the doctor's orders and we'll see who wins and Dr. Croesus is like well that's fucking insane and Karloff goes you're on motherfucker like they're gonna <laughs> shake shake you know you shake now and then we'll wash our hands afterwards just to be fucking safe because we're not that stupid but <laughs> it's I love the way he's just automatically like I'm I'm really tired of this I'm really tired of this. I'm going to make this deal now. Let's make this happen here. I'm going to prove you wrong. Your God can't save you. In in the words of Karloff, you know, God is dead. Something, something needs you. Yeah. Something, something bleh. Mm. And, <laughs> bleh. and the, uh, so I find it, I find it fascinating that they kind of play into this whole tag team or bet of it all, because now if we think about it, nobody would try to pull that stuff. They would just get into an argument <laughs> over over who's oh, right God, and who's yeah. wrong and not, not even bother to have that kind of a wager because it would seem too grim, especially with what we've been through. But like thinking about the way we've dealt with everything, not for, for over a year and a half, it's it's like watching a like a distilled like breakdown of those arguments by a master who wasn't aware of co- wait there's covid like what <laughs> you're telling me you're going to let something like this happen again <laughs> huh <laughs> we cured polio motherfucker it was a couple of years after this movie we cured fucking polio <laughs> and um so yeah, and then we start realizing that the 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 plague is starting to take its toll even further because it first strikes our beloved Alan Napier. Um so he won't grow up to be Alfred the Butler. Um he will no. you know, he won't. He won't be able to join Adam West and Burt Ward in that cave and wear the back cowl cuz he's about to die and he he pines for his wife, but he can't be near her because if he's got the plague, he can't get near her because autoimmune diseases and such. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, which, you know, with the concern about making sure of how often do you go out in the middle of a COVID versus how much can you, if you can stay inside, can you stay inside and stay in there to protect others? And uh, he passes away. And already the the logic ball in the air is the question of this film eternally is, is this the Vervalica or is this the plague? And even Alan Napier's character is unsure. So even if he even if he doesn't have the play, even even if he doesn't have the Vervalica, he has the plague. So he can't be near his wife. He can't take the chance no matter what. If it's yeah. the Vervalica. Oh well, I guess I can't see my wife anyway because I don't know. But like, if if I've got the plague, I can't be near her because it'll worsen her disease. And they find him dead the next day, thanks to and Thea uh, 
Uh, Thea brings them, brings them over to him. Croesus examine Dr. Drosus examines her, him and Mary St. Aubin comes in very distressed, very, very scared. And mm. Drosus, you know, points, does all the tests and she's going, he's not dead. He's not dead. This is where we learn a bit about her sickness, if you like, and why she's being shielded by her husband because she's prone to these fainting fits, if you like. Yep. That practically knock her out completely, you know, to such an extent that she stops breathing, there's no heartbeat. Yeah. You know, for extended um, periods of time. It's like the jigsaw technology, you know, when when he gets, when he's able to lie down in the middle of the bathroom with Carrie Elwes, like that same thing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great line, though, where he actually says, uncovered or covered, the eyes see no more, Oof. which, again, is very cold, but is very practical. But he's, it always comes back to this. He's, he's very matter-of-fact and he's very regimented mm-hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> shy away a, from not use for a general <laughs> no 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 well that, yeah very, how how appropriate kevin you <laughs> you don't realize how clever you are what are you doing podcasting with this idiot <laughs> <laughs> but i do i do like the fact that she actually um his wife obviously um is taking none of this and sticks a pin in him just to see if he is still alive yeah because the uh, first two tests were the feather and the mirror. Yeah, yeah, they're inconclusive. Stick a pin in him. But it's really <laughs> funny because I actually saw an episode of Sykes. I mean, this is really on one. Um, it's a 1970s comedy uh, starring Eric Sykes, and it was written by Eric Sykes. And um, he actually references this in an episode where he's hypnotized and Hattie Jakes, who plays his twin sister, actually gets a pin and inject and stabs him with it. <laughs> of course, he jumps up and screams and goes, stop that now. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not hypnotized, but it's a, a direct pull from this. Yeah. And, and it's very, very unsettling when she's doing it. And, and, Ooh, yeah. and you, and I, and I'm not a needle guy. Um, nope. so like, you know, yeah. <laughs> You know, it, it's it's <laughs> this last month's been really taxing. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, like, I'm glad the needle hit me. I loved it. the The guy that did my injection, it was fantastic. I you, just went, wow. Yeah. I I didn't even feel that. And he yeah. said, he turned to me very dryly and says, "I've done this a lot now." Yeah, he I my first my second one was relatively like he let me know when he was putting it in and not whatnot. The first one I got. The woman like swabbed my arm immediately, and Surprised she surprised you. <laughs> she, 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 she's this is what she did, Kev. She turned around, swabbed my arm. I turned my head. The next thing I felt was, "You're gonna heal a little bit sore in your arm for the next 48 hours." <laughs> like, you assassin, you, <laughs> you ninja. <laughs> I I appreciate a COVID ninja. <laughs> Look over there. What? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's when it's easy to hit me to it by a two by four. I am very gullible in that respect. And <laughs> the second time, though, it just knocked me flat on my ass. And I was watching Escape from Planet of the Apes, hoping that Cornelius and Zira escaped this time. They didn't. They 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 were tr- they were gunned Spoilers. down. Spoilers. They were gunned down. <laughs> but it's okay. Ricardo Montalban saved their son, and he's going to overthrow those fucking humans. 
<laughs> Didn't uh, do him any good, though, because he still ended up stuck in a spaceship, buried alive. <laughs> God! <laughs> God! I'm part of all of the sci-fi franchises. I'm sort of in Star Wars, if you think about it. <laughs> but not really. <laughs> Um, yes, no, so, like, we get the, so she reveals that trance stuff to Dr. Josephson and makes sure that if this happens to her, they do all the tests on her before they bury her because she has an intense fear of being buried alive, which is the most normal thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, uh, you think about it and think this is something that is a constant throughout, especially when you look at Victorian era, for instance, where they would have some really bizarre um, contraptions to make sure that you were actually dead before you got buried, Mm -hmm. even down to bells on the top of the coffin, which is referenced in the first great train robbery, Donald Sutherland and Sean Connery. Yeah. Where Donald Sutherland's the dead body in the... Yeah, it's in that. But then, of course, it goes through Vault of Horror. You've got the same person where he's a scratching from the inside of the coffin. Don't tell me too much. It's one that's still on my list. <laughs> okay. But as well as that, you've got two themes that pop up again in um, The Serpents and the Rainbow, Wes Craven's film yeah. from 189. Because, of course, you've got the zombification, mm-hmm. which, again, is used in that. And, obviously, Buried Alive. So Buried Alive is always something that keeps rearing its head every generation. Yeah. The, can I, I'll tell you, the first time I was ever exposed to it wasn't even through horror. It was through um, Quentin with Kill Bill Volume 2 when she's buried, when the bride is buried. Yeah. And yeah. it's one of the most uncomfortable things. And also, like, in that same year, he directed a CSI finale CSI. show. Where, yeah, yes. with the CSI where he was buried alive. And, like, yep. and, this, and that concept of being buried alive, like, I mean, quite literally. There's a movie called Buried. With Ryan Reynolds. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's a fine, it's fine. It's not my favorite thing that Reynolds <laughs> has done, obviously. But that concept still unnerves us to this day. Like, mm-hmm. I remember, actually, there was one horror movie, Light, that did this, which is when they put, uh, in the Mummy remake, when they put Emotep in uh, the sarcophagus after they yeah. wrapped him up and then put the scarabs mm. in, and then they seal it up, and you just hear... <laughs> Like that, that, that's a little unnerving too. And then that, like, and yep. Serpent in the Rainbow, when I ended up seeing that, like, that was to me the more affecting one out of any of them. Because, well, one, Wes Craven's dealing with some psychedelic shit there. But yeah, <laughs> number <definitely>. two, <laughs> uh, it felt a little bit more in, tr- in line with a blend of reality mixed with that kind of Luton influence that would have been about. It just exactly. feels like yeah. it, it, it has that same feeling about it that i i would draw to as like this like the strongest of it but here what we'll get is incredible and so there's another scene that uh where you have obrecht and drosis washing their hands and obrecht says a prayer and then drosis joins in on the prayer by throwing things into the little fire thing and he goes like, well, are you giving in? And he goes, oh, that's my way of saying amen and accepting what my fate. And 
it's revealed that Drosus has the plague. The thing about the plague is is that it, it hits everybody pretty quick. Like you mm. could turn around one minute and suddenly one of the characters has the plague. That's how fast yeah. this happens. And Drosus is very perfunctory. Is in a matter of what two or three minutes in the film, um, he goes from sitting there chatting at the. Uh, it looks like an amphitheater um, <laughs> outside. The, the like the little. I don't know what they were doing there, but anyway, his yeah. hair looks fit as fit and fine. Yeah, and then he's dead in he's, a matter of minutes. Yeah, with that with that one bed scene uh, along yeah. there, and like Thea's trying to give him the medicine so that at least he need not suffer. Or is it Thea or is it Mary? Mm. No, it's Thea. It's Thea. Uh, it's Mary. No, it's, it's Mary. Mary, Mary, Mary. Yeah, Mary's giving yeah. her the medicine, going like, "At least you need not suffer," and he's just like. I can handle death. Bring it on. Like, <laughs> like that's kind of his thing. He, I love the line. He's just like, I've, I've fought my man. I, I, I will face my enemy of death. I fought him many times and won this time. He's won. And with Drosus gone, there comes the time when Frides is able to be further seduced by the, idea of the Vervalica courtesy of Kira. Now, yeah. Kira doesn't ask him to believe her. What she does say is to take a, take into account the things that happens around the character of Thea and mm-hmm. the coincidences around it. Drawing conclusions based off of loose facts and superstition. Believing that a vaccine won't be able to... <laughs> <laughs> and 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 there's and and within that Karloff's just kind of like well I don't really believe you but I am in a position where I can't afford to not believe you. He keeps an open mind. Yes, exactly. Because his at this point his his religious views are established as such as like I heard stories from the old woman like Kira and when I grew up, I grew to I grew to understand and respect the things that I can see and I can feel. Yeah, and so he's become more of like a like a, like an atheist or like, like agnostic, agnostic. Yeah, like he's not he's yeah. not a devoid of that belief, but he's also not uh, he's not he's not impractical. Like he's not going to just believe exactly. about like a divine being in the clouds unless he can see some form of evidence around it. Um, and within that, Oliver is growing concerned for, uh, is growing concerned for the way Frides is treating Thea and to the point where they have this interesting father son chat, (laughs) like I forbid you to see that girl. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he even says, like, you know, no, you're not gonna have no but no paternal talk with me. I'm out of there. I'm gonna go hang out with Ellen. It's Ellen Drew. Do you not realize how amazingly good looking <laughs> and sweet and adorable she is? And <laughs> Boris Karloff, at one point when they're having that fight, he leaves and Boris Karloff gets up for a minute, but just stands there. And it's like it's it's wonderful because it's just like this general like literally has no grasp. It's a general losing command of his army. He views them as his army that he must protect yeah. and he must lead to victory. And he is losing control of them bit by bit by bit. It is. I think this is one of Karloff's best performances objectively. Like 
we have our favorites. You know, we either like, oh, yeah. you know, maybe I like the Black Cat would be my number one, Body Snatcher number two, Frankenstein number three, Frankenstein Monster number three. Objectively, if I'm going outside of that, this is one of his best performances because he's asked to play a line of terror and a line of empathy for somebody suffering. Like he is suffering here. He does not yeah. know how to handle this situation. He's a person trying to find the answer, and he's got a varvolica in one hand and a plague in the other. Like it is very fucking cool to watch him unfold like this. Um, mm. and I, I think it gets even worse because of how far he goes. Because at a certain point, he loses. Uh, focus in the story because we really start focusing on Thea and Mary. Right. Now, yeah, well, thinking about his unraveling, if you like, he also makes that physical by the fact that during the father-son talk and, in fact, subsequent scenes, he's not in proper full uniform. He actually walks around with his jacket on no shirt, and his jacket open. And up until this point, he's been pretty structured. You know, he's always on point, if you like. Everything's always on point. And it's almost like he's given up. Given up. He's gone you know, from he, he's gone from general studious to general slack off. It's like, like <laughs> very if, much, if, yeah. If, like, and not to like, it's not like super humorous so much. It's just like it like literally looks like he has. It it looks like he unwinded from two days ago and didn't stop unwinding. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's very very disheveled, but it is. And it, and what I like about it is is that the creepiness does not come from his, uh, from his appearance this time. This really is coming from like the 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 the, the depths that a man can be driven to. Like that's the that's the spark there that I really dig. Um, mm. and this is, this is around the time where Thea starts becoming a lot more concerned with whether or not she is a Vorvalica. <laughs> so she starts <laughs> yeah. believing this and really has to go to Mary St. Aubin and be like, you were sick before me, right? And she's like, yes, I told you that. And I think the audience heard that too. I'm pretty sure. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> That my condition is incurable and was bound to get worse. These things were be, to be expected. And she's like yeah. really trying to calm Thea down of just like somebody this young shouldn't be like concerned with this much. And like, it, like the amount of, she's already a refugee from her country. She's clearly like been like kind of like taken in by the St. Aubins and this is rough for her all around. Hmm. And on top of that, you got somebody like Kira, like cramming down oh. your throat. The the, the thing is, nonsense. yeah, Kira, Kira is the one that's upsetting the apple cart completely. If she wasn't so close to being hysterical all the time with all this crazy supernatural shit, yeah, I'm pretty sure they could have combated it a little bit more logically. You mean they could have gotten the numbers down, Kev? You mean we could have opened up movie theaters quicker, Kev? You mean we could have kept the economy afloat, Kev? <laughs> anyway, back to Kira. Yes, she is very, yeah. very unstable uh, and very, very superstitious. And um, the uh, f- 
she he basically tw- she twists Freedy's to the point where Freedy's goes, you know, if evidence shows that Thea is the Vervalica, I'm gonna take her out, as it were. Yeah, you know, mm. I'm not gonna let no Vervalica ruin my fun island vacation. <laughs> <laughs> General Freedy's funky island uh, island of terror. <laughs> Come on over. Like got my ties all over the place. Um and I, I I like that he's driven further into that. And the so th- this all leads into Oliver, like who Oliver, by the way, he's like he is the male cipher like hunk character. He is, but he, yeah. But he he lends something to it. He he doubles down on the point of view of not believing in the superstition, but also like, you know, we can leave anytime we want here because I'm not under your command. Thea's in danger because of that superstitious witch in you. And uh, we've got to get her out of here. And Freedies mm. is like, no, 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 no. We follow the we follow the machinations of that crazy old woman. That's that's our job here. That's our job. <laughs> <laughs> and I but I do like that he tries to get her off the island. He does I try. like the fact that he's he's so affable and possibly the most human, if you mm. like. You know, the he's the he's Kind of like the surrogate for the audience. Yeah. To a certain extent. He's just like, well, say, you're all a bunch of monsters here. And I'm going to level everybody out here and at least save Ellen Drew. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, how many times have you been watching a a horror film and you've thought, all you need to do is not go up there into the loft. You can just leave the house, call the police from the phone down the road. Mm -hmm. It's all sorted. He's basically trying to be that guy. He's like, look, there's some crazy shit going on here. We've already got three people killed and we're only on to a second night at our crazy weekend stay at the island. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get out of Dodge while we've still got something worth getting out for. Yeah. And and but and again, Freedies keeps doubling down on like, no, if we do that, the troops are then the troops will be exposed. And now, the, and this lays into that whole debate about like what we've dealt with in the last four years of like, you know, going outside your house and like what those ramifications and limitations are. Um, and as everything started easing up, you know, you use the caution and use the reason. Yeah. Karloff's character, Freedies, doesn't see it that way. And I, I guess in a way he's right because they don't have the same amount of precautions that we would have had, that we would have today per se. Like, exactly. Mask mandatory. You know, six feet apart. Why? Like they didn't have TikTok to show them how to do it. Is basically the <laughs> issue. Um, but like, so like it, the fi- the thing that I find interesting about the film is that everybody's got an argument that sounds somewhat feasible, with the exception of Kira and the Vervalica. <laughs> the Vervalica, exactly. Yeah. The, the Vervalica is a flat out like that's just superstitious anti-vaxxer hokum. Now, <laughs> but that's. From her perspective, that is still something that's a credible answer to it because she's from a different generation. He actually says he's from the old Greece. Yeah, exactly. You know, and to her, that is perfectly legit example. Yeah, Yeah. 
perfectly legitimate to hit to mm. her. And mm. so then you, so then you're right. Like you're coming from like several different angles where everybody's got some form of point that, yeah. that, that has a validity to it, but it is all centered around decision-making that Oliver circumvents. He's just like, you're not my general and you're not the general of these civilians, especially not Thea. Cause Nobody can boss around Ellen Drew unless his name is Oliver. And, uh, and uh, so I'm going to get Ellen Drew out of here and go marry Ellen Drew. And you can do whatever you want, Karloff. <laughs> get the fuck out of here. Um, and there is a boat that could take him out there, except, oh, no. Uh-oh. Freedies off screen. Smash that boat to pieces. And I... I love in horror movies and older movies when you see a dramatic scene where the music goes up and you see somebody smashing something to bits. I kind of wish we had a scene with Karloff destroying the ship (laughs) to watch him kind of go nuts, but Mm. (laughs) it doesn't, it doesn't need to be there at all. But I kind of like, I kind of like the fact that it's actually just thrown in as a a kind of an aside, you know, oh, by the way, no, you can't go anywhere because I've just smashed the shit out of the ship. Yeah. There's no chance of it getting out. And, that suddenly, in that instant, you've not had a scene at all. So it's gone from there's a method of escape we can get out of here to a second later, you're screwed. You can't get out of here. Yeah. It, it's it's uh, the reason I want to see it is just to watch Boris Karloff smash a ship. <laughs> Outside of that, dramatically, it makes the most sense because it allows us to lay more into that atmosphere around yeah. this island. Because he Christ. keeps... Adel Ray, you do, do write a mean script. Yeah. Jeez. And then I'm going to scare the pants off of them. And then I'm going to do it <laughs> yeah. some more. And then I'm going to lay in yeah. more dread. And then I'm going to make them question <laughs> their own life choices. And then COVID-19 is going to happen, and it's going to scare them even more 90 years later. Ardell Ray thought of everything here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, the addition to that also is that Oliver keeps telling Thea to go get away from the general because you bother him. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the kind version of get away, kid. You bother me, <laughs> like, but it's it it's it. So like, this is why we get more of chances to lay around in the atmosphere of the island with Ellen Drew looking terrified, looking concerned. Um, and within this, they're stuck on the island. Mary Saint Alban falls to the ground, and overnight, mm-hmm. as she lies on the ground decaying so to, so it would seem we hear through the door Luton is really good through horror through the door something happens behind a door and it scares you whether it's the leopard man or this and leopard man's scary obviously because it's a leopard man it's a leopard <laughs> it's a leopard man <laughs> but uh, but here it's the machinations of the superstitions of Kira unnerving and driving Thea up a wall. That is scarier to me than the leopard man only because it's an idea pushing through that door and hitting Thea's ears. That is so it's one. It's it pisses me off because I'm like, fuck you, Kira. But two, (laughs) it it is watching Ellen drew. Like you are just dreading the fact that she's, she's like put, ashes on the door she's saying the varvalica get out prayers and such like yep she's driving her up the wall and 
over the course of the night, it looks like Mary is dead. Yeah, because what we've not mentioned is that Mary has actually fallen onto the floor of her own bedroom. Yes, yes. So, of course, this means that Thea can actually lock herself in there to a certain extent with Mary and watch over her, hopefully thinking that it's just one of her funny turns. Yeah, and that it's not the plague or that she's not a Vorvalica. She's got three things to worry about. Sorry, I have four. Three things. (laughs) He ordered three shots. (laughs) We ordered three. (laughs) And uh, and, uh, so she's got all of these elements to worry about when they go in the next day and they, and you know, Albrecht is like, she would have insisted on the test. Let's do the test. And they do the tests. It looks like she's dead. They say, get a box. Yep. Now we, as the audience are, are given some information, Hitchcockian like information up front of like, well, I have this illness. You see it's incurable. And so we, as the audience are unsure, we're uncertain if she's got the plague or not, we are literally waiting on the edge of our seats wondering what is going to happen after they put her in that box. And what happens when they put her in that box, Kev? <laughs> oh, well, don't forget, we are given a little hint, if you like, um, because obviously they do the test, don't they? they do the feather test yeah. and the mirror test. Yeah. And then they leave her to it because obviously they just think, well, that's it, she's She's snuffed it. It's fine. Um, they leave the the bedroom, obviously, to go and get the box. While they leave the box, while they leave the bedroom to get the box, her lips move. Uh-huh, yeah. Which we see as close-up. Yeah. So she is buried yeah. in the box. And... We're, well, kind of left in state for a, yeah. a while, isn't she? She's, she's in, like... Watchtower? Yeah. I still don't know what that is. The the big stone building. Look, Kev, all (laughs) along the Watchtower, St. Aubin's kept in a box. Dun, 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 dun. Now, um, and you just hear Jimi Hendrix's guitar playing over the score (laughs) for absolutely no reason. And yeah, because this scene here is a good example of only using the sound when you need it because of creeping in on that box and then that jolt. <laughs> it's yeah. the jump scare that Oof. is earned. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, you you talk about this detail in the sound. You've got very little sound from outside, even though we can see that it is actually a windy day because you've got, again, you've got some great shadow play. You have... Images of tree branches mm-hmm. um, just sort of brushing across what would be the coffin, but it's not, it's just a box. Um, but to add to that, you suddenly get this start, this dripping start from the uh, ceiling onto the box. Yeah. Uh, and- which again, you've just got is a complete detail that for no other reason other than just to keep you unnerved until you get that jolt. It's, it's almost to remind you that the box is there. <laughs> like to yes. just, it's just like to dig the knife into you further. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know that box is there, right? And you know there's a human being that's like going to be breathing, right? Like that it's, it's it's terrifying. And 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 I I get this like overwhelming like 
sense of dread when scenes like this pop up in a movie as we were discussing the other ex- instances of being buried alive. This one yeah. in particular, she's right out in the open. Feasibly, there's a there's a quick way out. She can't get out though. It's no. it's like it's 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 ter- it's like you know you 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 know when you're in a situation where you know you can leave um but you can't leave cuz you feel trapped like kind of like this podcast you you feel like you're trapped <laughs> <laughs> so you can't leave and um and no but like so like and especially cuz the way the box is constructed cuz like you start she starts pushing on it to the point where they hear the splintering of a wood from afar that's some yeah. loud pushing my friend cuz Kira Kira hears it as Freedies is overlooking her because she's Kira's like fucking freaked out by now because she's just yeah. like the Vervalica. We I forgot to mention whoever whoever kills a Vervalica become whoever is killed by a Vervalica becomes a Vervalica. Um, so it's like the uh, so it's like the werewolf thing, like a you know Bella yeah. bites Bella bites uh, Lon Chaney and yeah. And it feeds him with the vampire thing as well. Yes, exactly. Comes a vampire and whatnot. Like, mm-hmm. so like that, and Val Luton's just like, see, I can make a universal monster movie. Fuck you. <laughs> 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 and him and then him and Boris have a high five. And, um, the, and this is where Freedy's like really unravels to his point of no return, like no return. There's no going back for Freedy's. He is now convinced that, the Vervalica is real. And that what's more, something is abound at the, uh, not, not the, not just with Thea, but also with Mary. And this is when we get this atmospheric and very moody sequence of events, which all lead up to the revelation that Mary is alive. Yeah. Because obviously, when she's in the tomb, when she's in the casket, we might still be playing into that Vorvalica territory. But in our, our when when our knowledge continues to kick in that she has that illness, the moment she's walking around, she says a phrase of like "Leave me in, leave me in," like like keep me shut in, like close the door on me. Like you're just like, oh, she was alive the whole time. She's pissed now. Like she's Mary's pissed. And now here's the question I have. I guess it, it's similar to the haunting. It doesn't really matter. Is there a Vervalica? Hmm. I don't think so. I think this is just Mary being pissed. Yeah. Now, um, although she does look so much better when she's been dead for a bit. <laughs> She got a good nap. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, Did it well. Don't you know what happens when you get buried alive for about five hours, Kev? You come out 10 years younger. <laughs> that's, that's how this works. It's like it's like a de-aging box. And you're, you know what's here? I agree with you. I agree with you, sir. However, because not everybody else thinks so, apart from you, the viewer... It makes it ten times more interesting slash unsure. <laughs> it's made more interesting by the fact that when uh, Thea's walking around the island um, for some bizarre reason at midnight on a windy island uh, alone, 
She I couldn't don't get know her. Why. She didn't get her steps in earlier, Kev. Like she uh, needs must it. Must be that. <laughs> she yeah. needs, she needs that golden ten thousand. Yeah, she's um, got to get a Fitbit so that she can pay it off with the insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love the fact that because Mary's for some reason being thrown into this casket in the most flowing gown I've ever seen out of anything since this side of Snow White. Because of the wind, it just kind of plays with her shape. So she looks like she's almost a vapor in some shots. Yeah. And she doesn't. She moves. And he keeps her in the shadows. Robson and and Luton keep her in the shadows. For the most Um, part, yeah. And to the point where even even the hint of her appearance under the light is so scant. When I remember the first time I ever saw this, I wondered if they were trying to like blend it and make you wonder if it's Thea or if it's Mary and like play into like, who is it? But then like when when I rewatched it with film club and then subsequently for this show, I'm like the, the HD thankfully like clarifies it for me. Like, no, it's supposed to be Mary and (laughs) Mary Mary takes her vengeance in the harshest way. Not off. She grabs a trident. Trident, yeah. <laughs> from Doctor Albrecht, which I'm like, what the hell are you doing that thing? Well, I guess antiquities from Homer. Marshmallows. <laughs> yes, don't you know? Um, in, in addition to my antiquities uh, obsession, I'm also a big fan of s'mores. First, you roast a mallow, <laughs> then you get the gram. You're killing me, Smalls. <laughs> and she takes this trident off her off his desk. And Kira is like petrified. She's like, she cannot move from her bed. She is like mm-hmm. doing the like the, the like the darting eyes, like physical yep. like move. And Mary just stabs her. Like stabs her it's firm. Very brutal. It's brutal, yeah. especially for 1945. Like you yes. what? <laughs> it's pretty graphic. And it's through the front of the throat as well, which is even more. It's not into the chest or anything like that. It's very much kind of, this is going to shut you up now, you crazy harpy. Yep. Oh, God. And you know what? You applaud. You applaud Mary for doing that. <laughs> yeah. Because like, because I, like, as we said at the top, there's not really a traditional villain in this film because of the fact that everybody is so well-rounded and they're all diving into their beliefs. However, let's face it. We all want to see Kira fucking get tossed off a cliff or hit by a car. Here she gets stabbed (laughs) in the throat. And I think mission accomplished, you know, we got our traditional villain killed because even if there was a Vorvalica, it's no reason to be an asshole. And, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, this is where Oliver and Thea start tracking her down further. Meanwhile, Freedies is losing it. In addition to the fact that we didn't talk about this, he has come down with the plague as well. Yep. He has taken command for the last time. And he's basically vowed that, like, look, if I'm going to die, I'm taking out the Vovalica. Because... I've got to be the hero of my story. And, <laughs> and he he's kind of like dragging himself across the house. So I like that they're juxtaposing this is like as they are 
confronting Mary and driving her out, like trying to catch up with her, we are seeing his madness and his sickness intertwine and him spiraling outward. Mm. And they catch up to Mary and she, she is basically cornered into a cliff where she falls, um, like off the cliff. And it's very tragic to see her die this way. Like, yeah. it's, it's like it's the whole movie operates under like series of like unfortunate occurrences as a result of this plague tied in with the superstition and the paranoia of the Varvolica. So it's like, it's like a tragedy more than anything. It's an Island tragedy. It's uh, cause like a horror film to me, horror films indicate in some form the idea that something is deserved Whereas a a terror film like this or a thriller can kind of it tends to tends to indicate at times more of a tragedy that lays in more drama. And I know that, you know, trying to say that some horror films can't be dramas or vice versa is a tricky territory because I believe that you can see horror films in some of the grandest dramas. But this is like a, a separation point for me where I'm like, this is the difference between like a horror film and a terror film, the way Luton has just uh, the way uh, Adam described it in his series about like this. This is the stark difference here. And yeah. what's more through v- Luton's own words and his own thoughts in regards to Universal Monster movies, which were horror at the time versus what he is doing, which is terror. And so she falls off the cliff. Thea and Oliver are like crushed by this and they go back to the house and they find Freedies still crawling around going like, I have to destroy the Vavalica. And they basically allude to the fact that the Vavalica has been destroyed. They don't clarify for him how. And Freedies is like, then I did it. I saved the day. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> obviously he's seen, uh, Mary running around the house, in, in going completely crazy trousers. Yeah, exactly, and he, and... but she, but he thinks it's Thea because he is yes. still under that impetus. Yeah, and um, and I love how um, they said it. Uh, it is done. She has gone back to that endless night. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you? I that's like... all he needs to know. And I, you know what? I like the line after that line when he so he hear he says that yeah and he or he hears that and he falls dead and oliver says a line that's very telling and one of the reasons why i really like carlos performances in this performance in this is that like he was trying to do he was trying to do good like he he was yeah. trying to save his he was trying to save people in his own way and that to me brings to the point of Karloff's performance being this one being among the finest performances he's ever given lays into the fact that Karloff Karloff's demise is not necessarily from the plague to my mind. It's from being driven out of control by the conflating ideals that clash in his head. Obviously the plague physically takes him down. Well, don't forget, he's also stabbed in the sh- shoulder. Yes, yeah, yeah, right yes. shoulder yeah. by, by a trident. Yeah, by the trident. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forgot to mention, Mary does stab him with a trident as well. Yeah, 
because I think Mary at this point is just trying to stab anybody and I think she's actually going for Thea and missing yeah. if you like basically he's got in the way at just the right point you know he he's basically um all the president's men he's taking the shot for the president yeah exactly <laughs> unlike Mr. Arbuckle who's the father of who would help the people who would catch all the president's men. <laughs> it's all connected, but, you yeah. know. My 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 yeah. hobby and antiques will go far in cinema history. <laughs> and but yeah, but I but that but the thematic notion of Karloff being driven and split apart at the seams by ideals is utterly fascinating. And it's something that drives yeah. that drives narrative films in any way, shape, or form to this day, especially dramas and especially heavy-hitting dramas. So horror is something... Something of this nature with horror exemplifies it in a way that is more impactful sometimes than even a melodrama of the era is going to be where they give you that split down the middle and ask you to... You ask the character to pick a side. Um, and the mm. final image is them leaving the island and... Crossfaded again with the three-headed Cerberus. Yeah, exactly. Which is the guardian of the underworld. Which, so. which, which, to me says that Val Luton goes like, "Oh, guys, you can't leave this movie. You're stuck here forever." Um, <laughs> roll it again, Chuck. <laughs> it's Cerberus. They're guarding. They are making sure you can't leave. You've been dead this entire time, audience. <laughs> yeah. That'd be oh, that'd be great if you went to a movie. Like if you if you were watching a movie at home and then the movie wouldn't let you leave, <laughs> dead of night all over again. Yeah, it's just like oh 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 my god, you can't you can't stop watching at the circus, Zach. You're stuck in this Marx Brothers movie forever. <laughs> no, um, and that's the end. An RKO production, uh, a Val of the Val Luton unit. Uh, yeah. Kev, we, we, we talked a good chunk of, of how the, the of not just the social, political, and emotional drama afoot, but also the importance of atmosphere and horror yet again. Um, mm. Before we get into the reception of the film, really quickly, wh what does this film do for you maybe that other Val Luton movies don't? Because that's the one thing I want to take away from this conversation is I, I do believe that this film separates itself from the other Luton lot in a stark way. For me, it's just the over, it's just the overreaching fear and dread that never leaves. It's always there. There's always this presence. It never lets up. There's an atmosphere that starts from the very beginning with the battle scene and it doesn't let up. It's not into it. It's not injected by any comedy anywhere. There's no let up, if you like. It mm -hmm. it doesn't. Once it's got his hands, uh, once it's got his claws in you, it won't let you go. I would, um, I would say that this is a good double bill with "I Walked with a Zombie." Yeah, because "I Walked with a Zombie" operates like a tome poem. On its surface, it's Jane Eyre. But it's yeah. a tone poem that also keeps a consistent tone for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. And, fun fact, the painting Isle of the Dead is in the movie I Walked with the Zombie. So, 
you know, it's a good little thematic double bill for you there, as well as prop, prop uh, <laughs> Easter egg double bill. <laughs> <laughs> Val well, Luton's I mean, like, here's my Easter treat for your basket, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, even the theme of um, the romance between Thea and Oliver, you never know what happens there. Mm-hmm. Um, is that as doomed as everything else? You'd, you're never even sure whether they get off the island. <laughs> are they plague carriers themselves? I mean, Kev, she's Ellen Drew. You think she's going to try to kill me in the middle of the night? I mean, I'm what? <laughs> the least known leading man in film history? <laughs> I don't even have exactly. a Wikipedia entry. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have an IMDb. I didn't look. <laughs> I, I, you know, I like. I agree because that, there is that ambiguity. Because again, it's already been established. If they go outside that island, they are bringing the plague over there. Yeah, we know if they've got the plague. The Soraka does come in. Which yes, is, that that I forgot to mention. The Soraka does come in, and that's when we find out that Karloff is um, uh, got the plague. So, Interestingly, too late. Yeah, yeah. Um, as an as a nod to that as well, they use a white flag, which points out which way the the wind's blowing, and you could always read that as a white flag of surrender as well. Yeah, yeah. I could I could definitely see that. That's like that's it it's it's it's. it's it plays into imagery that is obvious, but doesn't like, but it's not presenting itself as such. Like it's, it's yeah. meant, it's more of a transition than anything else. Um, but it's again, there's an attention to detail that Luton has with his productions in all forms that create the symbology in this language of, of film, especially with horror or terror that we still use this coded language and you can find that in you can find that in the different ways in which Boris Karloff presents himself in this film certain elements of the way the the monsters are presented or the way the way Mary behaves by the third act um especially with the box and like the dripping of the water and stuff like and just like yep. being like in the cat in, like in a catacombs and this idea of using these moments of cinematic language in these horror films that I would argue benefit all of cinema today and not just horror. Like everything is affected by the movies of Val Luton, every genre, like maybe, maybe, I don't know, comedy. I'm trying to think of a Val Luton comedy. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know. It's Ghostbusters. I (laughs) <laughs> but I've mentioned a situation comedy from 1972 that, that references that is, it for a start off. That, so that, that is true. And <laughs> now, before we talk about the lasting impact of this film and Val Luton at large, which I mean, don't worry, guys, we'll talk more Val Luton. I'm sure it's like this subject's never going to go away for several reasons. <laughs> and uh, this film had its premiere in New York City on September 7th, 1945, at a budget of 24600 thousand dollars this is the highest budget he'd had for a movie to this date the rentals on this film ended up being two hundred sixty six hundred thousand dollars and foreign rentals at a hundred and seventeen hundred thousand dollars the profit on this film was a narrow margin of thirteen thousand dollars for rko so this is not in line 
with the same booming success that he had been used to. Yeah. Now, it should be pointed out that Isle of the Dead is the second to last Luton horror movie. Of Don't the... forget about the timing of the release as well, because it was premiered on 7th of September 1945, which means there was a war on. Yep. It wasn't until, I think it's the week after, that it was um, declared over. Yeah, uh, VJ Day. Um, yeah. Because that would have been, yeah. VJ Day. VJ Day was, um, I should have remembered this from the Gajira episode, but uh, yeah, go figure. Right now. Oh, no, 15th of August. Okay, so never mind. Okay, so, so they were, oh, well, you know what? You're still right, though, because we're getting over the fatigue of war here. Yeah. war Films that have a war theme in it of any kind at this point at the box office are slipping. Mm-hmm. It also like ties into if you're going to watch something depressing, you're going toward a noir film first and foremost at this point, which isn't <laughs> yeah. really going to happen until that doesn't really happen until after double indemnity kicks, kicks a lot of it off. Um, and I feel like the mood of the country would be more of celebration rather than the bleak offering that the this same, film gives. Yeah. The same fate. Uh, befell uh, Dead of Night for the same reason because um, that was released in I think it was August 1945 and again this was what a month or two after D-Day yeah and which is, which is the Ealing film that you've actually talked about on Amicus yeah and I've yeah. still never seen this, but listening to the episode on it, I'm like, I I need to look more into Ealing now too. <laughs> you need to stop giving me British studios to look into. <laughs> All of you people, I swear. Um, although I um I there there are, there are Ealing comedies that I like, like The Lady Killers, which is the obvious go to. But I've also I I loved uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets recently uh, with Alec yeah. Guinness getting killed several times which you didn't think was possible <laughs> there's there's also another ealing film you need to pick up and stick on your list it's went the day well which is a graham green novel Ooh. and that actually um how can i put this this actually predicts exactly how the war <laughs> pans out seven years before the war actually finishes really what's it called uh, went went the day well. Went the day well. All right, this yes. is on the list. Um, <laughs> I need to. Yeah, I need to see this. Um, <laughs> so, long story short, this movie was not a major success for RKO. What's more, this comes at the turning point. The last of the big horror films that he would produce for RKO would be Bedlam with Boris Karloff, which uh, I've still not seen. I want to see that. Um, it's good. Um, I I don't find any fault with the Val Luton horror films. There are just ones I prefer over the others. Um, yeah. So like I Curse of the Cat People is an amazing movie, but it is not the movie I go back to a bunch. Um, <laughs> probably because it's just a bunch. It's very heavy, and I'm just like I don't I don't feel like this today. I would rather watch the first Cat People or 
if I'm really in a mood, I go for my favorite, which is Body Snatcher, because amongst the elements it has going on there is that same terror that that permeates his films, but plus Bella Lugosi in one of the finest scenes he's ever given in a movie uh, being played out there. Not my favorite scene he's ever done, but it's among the best things objectively he ever did. And that scene between him and Boris stacks in the same regard as any time they collaborated together at universal. It's a great, definitely. Um, yeah. And, uh, so the result is like the, the, the fate of Luton after this point, um, is between that period of 45 and 46 Karloff's in these three films, Charles Kerner dies in 1946. Luton's biggest supporter is, is gone. And, in addition to having a minor heart attack, he is let go from RKO. And for the rest of Luton's story, you're not going to hear it from me because I'm not, <laughs> I am not, I am not pals with Mark Gaddis, number one, but number two, <laughs> I'm friends with, I'm friends with Kev. Kev, do you want to finish up the story of Val Luton and <laughs> Um, I couldn't do it any justice. That's fine. Let's talk about Donald Pleasance and his daughter again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I, I do, I do mention uh, Secret History of Hollywood a lot on the show, but I do mean it. You need to listen to this series if you don't listen to any other ones, because if you thought we were uh, vague in any way with the history or cliff notesy. Part of it is because we've got to get through an entire plot of a 71 minute movie, which we managed to do for over three hours now, um, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> uh, but also there's one thing that this show can't do and it's bring the heart and legacy of Luton to life the way that miniseries does. Um, like this is like, this is no joke hour. This is sincerity hour. What, what that show does is give Luton a life that he never had before the same way you have for Orson Welles or even John Huston or Alfred Hitchcock. That series gives Luton a voice he never had before. Um, hence why I'm not going to even try to finish up the story here. But we will continue to talk about Luton because I want to talk about Body Stature next. <laughs> <laughs> you understand he's, he, he kills that girl. And and he he he's the he's in the coach. Kor- Karloff is in the coach. He didn't have to be in the coach. He's in the coach, and he follows her off. And her singing is cut off because she's killed her, Kev. Uh, <laughs> um, now, as far as the legacy of Val Luton in films today, we talked about Martin Scorsese up at the top. I. When I did Shamley, I alluded to the fact that Shutter Island had a lot of Hitchcock about it, and I still believe that. However, it's ungodly clear <laughs> that Shutter Island is a Val Luton movie. <laughs> that's not even a like question. And yeah, no, that's yeah. That's that's like, but I I per, I put it more. I put it in the Hitchcock camp in in the terms of certain techniques that are used, like the rear projection. But yeah, that that movie is t- basically taking a you know a a a, a, a generic-ish mental insanity plot and adding the visual flourish to it. Um, but 
atmospheric horror in general, again, this film, along with all the other Luton films, gives Robert Wise something to work off of for The Haunting, which then in turn inspires all the other films we brought up in The Haunting. So in a lot of ways, this is like the prequel to your Haunting episode, which makes no sense logistically. (laughs) (laughs) Well, funnily enough, Robert Wise is responsible for Body Snatcher as well. So Yes, he is. Yeah, and so we were we are we are going to go back to Luton and Wise in the same one next time with Luton because Robert Wise is there's there's choices in that movie that clearly come from both minds at the same point, and I love the ending of that movie. That the ending of the of the Body Snatcher unnerves me because it is. There's like there's this tinge of regret strewn about and paranoia strewn about that is just like by the time it comes to a head in the carriage and it gets so mm. I, I I lose it. Um <laughs> and uh but as far as like and as far as like Luton's legacy and whatnot, like I think it does like I think with horror, the debate of horror drawing a line in the sand between like what's scary and what's not scary, you know, like I think Ari Aster's films have benefited from Luton a lot. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Like hereditary, um, uh, obviously, but also like midsummer operates entirely off of mood. Like you, yeah. you are not let go of in that film. Um, and Oz Perkins. I think Oz Perkins benefits greatly from something like a Luton, but he's also drawing off of different gothic elements as well. So, like, I think Luton mm. has been able to find a comfortable home influence-wise with the gothic atmosphere that it originally, like, was trying to compete with in, in, to an extent. Um, yeah. But also psychological terror. <laughs> Here's another connection. You know, we were talking about Body Snatcher. Yeah. Um, there's also a connection with, um, Donald Pleasance to be had with Body Snatcher as well, because John Gilling, the Hammer director, directed The Flesh and the Fiends in 1960, which starred Peter (laughs) Cushing and Donald Pleasance. (laughs) About Burke and Hare. Practically the same film. Yeah, yeah. They actually... It got me thinking of going through, like, rewatching the Scream Factory one. I kind of wanted to start, like, f- digging up Burke and Hare, like, st- esque stories throughout, yeah. like, and trying to see the progression of how it's presented. I've still never seen the one Landis did, and I don't know if I should even bother, but um, uh, with Pagan Circus um, in it. Um, hmm. You've never, oh, you've never heard of this? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, What's it called? Um, one second, Simon Pang. Let me make sure I got this right. Oh yes, yes, yes I have seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I've still never seen it, but it's but um, it's directed by it's Landon. Funny, it is okay. <laughs> it <laughs> is, yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Par for the course, and I like and I like both those actors there. So, um, yeah, and uh, but yeah, no, um, the one you mentioned with Cushing, that I don't I don't think I've seen that one either. But with Pleasance. I'm going to be game. Pleasance is somebody I appreciate from a Halloween level, but I am trying to dig more into him. I also like him as Blofeld, but I'm not a, yeah, I'm not as big a James <laughs> Bond guy as everybody else. I'm more of a Richard Johnson guy. <laughs> Spy should have stayed in the cold is, is the finest 
finest James Bond movie. Then, God, that movie was such a fuck. Oh, that's hard work. You had to convince me that I liked more than two things in that movie. <laughs> Going like, okay, fine. I like the Tough score call. during the explosion. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, Kev, thank you again for chatting with us for a good extended period of time on a horror film. Obviously, oh, you're welcome great. back to this show anytime, and I think we <laughs> we should probably just complete the cycle and combine Wise and Luton for the Body Snatcher next time you're on board. Um, uh, but really quickly, you mentioned Hammer. Tell us a, bu- a bit more about what you do podcasting-wise and give tell the audience when they'll be able to find <sighs> out about more Hammer films uh, down the line. Uh, well, hopefully, late May 2021, uh, the House of Hammer, the doors will be opening. Mm-hmm. Um, we will be going through many, many rooms in that particular house. And that's going to be an interesting journey. Um, as well as that, I'm obviously more regularly around in Film Guff, mm-hmm. uh, which covers all sorts of random films. We have got some really odd ones. Again, this will... Uh, be out probably after the episodes have aired but we're covering such disparate things i think over the next month as a little known um not polanski film from 1970 which is called a day at the beach uh combined with mortal Kombat 2021 and life force from 1982 can so, I can I tell you can, can I can I get a tease and find out what you did think of Mortal Kombat 2021? Give the give the audience a little spark. <laughs> I was mildly amused. Okay. Um, I, yeah. I went in with zero um expectation. Yeah, video game films, you know, you don't expect anything. But no, I I quite enjoyed it. Well shot. Yeah. Perfect. Did it's, the job. It's so much fun. Those com- those mortals it's, combated. <laughs> it's what I needed. <laughs> as well as that, you you look at the fight choreography and you think, hang on, there's some serious Hong Kong stuff going on here. Because, obviously, I'm used to seeing Blind Swordsman and um, Zatochi, you know, and um, Lone Wolf and Cub. And all that crazy gore is there. It's a natural extension of the Shaw Brothers ethos yeah. right away. Yeah. So yeah, Mortal Kombat yep. is still there. Yeah, I, um, I <laughs> folks will have already heard it on Real Nerds if they listen to that. But I quite enjoyed the film and then listened to everybody fight because um, <laughs> they're fans of the video game. And I'm like, guys, it was a fun fight movie. Look at they fought. <laughs> I get, I got yeah. very, I got very basic with it because it was like the best theater going experience I had had in over a year. Where I'm just like, everybody's having fun. They're, hooting and hollering like this is a blast so um yes yeah. on film club and also here lies amicus which is uh been a treat to dive down into the well on my next one is um house that drip blood um in my little journey with it i'm kind of going out of order with your episodes and kind of just yeah you know just kind of one because of availability because i didn't think i would find danger out but i found danger out you, you better <laughs> believe i found danger out wow and uh uh, but also, like, uh, just the amount of detail you and Gabriella go into and the guests that you have on and the people that you talk to in regards to the history of it and 
discussing what's available of those films too on a home video front has been my favorite part of the discussion. Yeah, that's tricky. Learn, what, <laughs> like learning what the differences are, like learning what we have over here versus what you guys got over there. Oh yes, like yeah. you, you, yeah. You couldn't have picked a better like uh, subject to kind of go into and dive into, and I, I love the hell out of it, man. Like it's it's an amazing series. It's been great so far. Bizarrely, talking about the guests and stuff, um, the episode that's coming out next, which will probably be out by the time this episode's out anyway, mm-hmm. is a, a film called "And the And Now the Screaming Starts," and we were. All set, I was about two hours away from completing the edit and we were contacted by a man called Rodney Marshall who is the son of Roger Marshall, the screenwriter of And Now That Screaming Starts which basically put, basically put the brakes on everything. <laughs> we thought, right, we need to talk to Roger, Rodney Marshall, definitely. Wow. Oh, God. Oh, that's going to be fun. Yes, yeah. By the time this episode comes out, which should be mid June, look for here. I'll put a link to. Shoot, I'll put a link to it, and I don't care. But once you listen <laughs> to this podcast, you need to listen to the other podcasts and leave me be. But you need to go to Airlines <laughs> Amicus with this. That'll be super interesting because you are getting like the people who are like like attached to the creatives in this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I and given all that you've already put into that, I'm and knowing who is involved with Hammer alongside of you, I can imagine this is going to be quite of an epic show, and I'm excited to listen as a fan. So, um, Kev, thank you again for doing this. Obviously, we're going to have you back soon. Um, no problem. And um, this is going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Valley Who Review. You can find out more about us on the tags at the end of this show. Um, you know, the ones where I talk over the theme song and you hear a plinkety piano. It's all kinds of fun. Um, I love the plinkety piano. Oh, yeah. It's, it, you know, I actually, one of the guests that I can confirm here, we have a wonderful composer who made that theme for our um, for our show named Matty O'Connor. He's also known as Matty Ghost, but I'm going to call him by the name I've known him at since film school. Um, we're getting a, we're figuring out a film for him. There's a possibility he might break my Shamley rule and we might do a very deep dive into North by Northwest. Um, that's that's a TBD at this point. It would mainly be to talk about James Mason being the most bored villain in film history. But <laughs> uh, and uh, but also, amongst other things, we will be doing Andalusian Dog. And then there will be a bit of a break for a little while because I'm going off to make another short film. And hopefully by that point, I will start gathering up some discussions regarding a certain crazy but brilliant gentleman named John Houston for The Gambler's Creed. Um, and also, if you're listening to this by now, check out the Shamley silhouette and hear where this whole bullshit began. <laughs> start, start from the <laughs> beginning and watch it slowly get slowly get crazier and slowly get madder. Um, and yeah, but until next time, folks, good night. Good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. 
Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. No one may leave the island.